With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lock Talk Radio. substantive today. I have too much substance. We're going to talk about the filibuster. Um, we're going to talk about that amazing Ken Klippenstein piece of breaking news about how the U.S. military looks at lefties. We're going to talk about um, Iran's press TV being banned. I got an update. Remember the GameStop revolution that happened not too long ago? I have an update on that, which basically shows that Um, The whole thing was completely rigged, and it's still being rigged, and really the hedge hedge funds got walloped by the Redditors, and they're just cheating in order to prevent further losses. So we're going to talk about that too. Um, I got a Supreme Court case that you're going to want to hear about. Uh, it's, It's basically as bad of a decision as Plessy versus Ferguson. If you're not well versed on... Um, Supreme Court history, go ahead and look that up, Plessy versus Ferguson. And you think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not fucking exaggerating. Wait until you hear the specifics. So we're going to talk about that. There's an all-out war that's been declared on Nina Turner. Um, We have the New York Times lies for Chipotle executives and pretends that higher wages are leading to higher prices. So I'm going to be 
I'm going to be up to my eyeballs in substance today. And frankly, I'm excited. I'm excited to do the show today. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And uh, I want to talk about the filibuster and Kirsten Cinema and what Biden should do. Assuming, of course, he believes in the filibuster, which he doesn't. So we'll talk about all that. Let's dive into all that. Kirsten Cinema, one of the furthest right-wing Democrats in the Senate, if not the furthest right-wing Democrat in the Senate, it's got to be close between her and Manchin. I'm sure that there's uh, probably 538 is tracking it, and you could see who votes more with Republicans, Cinema or Manchin. I'm not sure who it is, but it's definitely one of those two. There are others that are close, but I think they're the worst. Uh, anyway, she wrote an op-ed, and the op-ed basically says, I want to keep the filibuster, and now let me go ahead and make some arguments as to why I think that's the right thing to do. So, I mean, the op-ed is silly. The op-ed is ridiculous. Not a single thing she says in the op-ed is accurate. You'll notice this. When people talk about maintaining the filibuster, they use this, like, faux intellectual, lofty, highfalutin rhetoric. And they act like, this is to preserve our democracy. Yes. But then you read the history of the filibuster, and what they're saying is just wrong. Like, for example, most of you guys probably think, what, the, you know, the founding fathers came up with the filibuster. Wrong. That's not true. The filibuster is actually a misinterpretation of the rules that it took them forever before the actual first filibuster. You know when the first filibuster was? A first real talking filibuster? 1837. That's way after the founding. And then when you read the history of it, you find amazing facts. So I'm going to get back to those points in a second. But I want to go ahead and, and show you some of Kirsten Sinema's arguments. Now, I'm not going to go to her op-ed, but she's given a number of interviews, and she's talked about the, this exact same topic. So here's some of what she said on the topic. Well, as folks in Arizona know, I've, been, I've long been a supporter of the filibuster because it is a tool that protects the democracy of our nation. I'm going to come back to that point later. Rather than allowing our country to ricochet wildly every two to four years back and forth between policies, the idea of the filibuster was created by those who came before us, the United States Senate, to cr create comedy and to encourage senators to find bipartisanship and work together. And while there are some who don't believe that bipartisanship is possible, I think that I'm a daily example that bipartisanship is possible. Not just this trip today and tomorrow that John Cornyn and I are doing, but the work that John and I and many other of my colleagues in both parties do on a regular basis. So to those who say we must make a choice between the filibuster and X, I say this is a false choice. The reality is that when you have a system that's not working effectively, and I would think that most would agree that the Senate's not particularly well, a well-oiled machine, right? The way to fix that is to change your behavior, not to eliminate the rules or change the rules, but to change your behavior. So I'm going to continue to go to work every day, aggressively seeking bipartisanship in a cheerful and happy warrior way, as I always do, and showing that when we work together, we can get things done. The core of this argument is something that has always driven me crazy. This idea that bipartisanship is definitionally good. So in other words, the substance of it doesn't matter, according to these people. Just the fact that we're doing bipartisanship is good. I mean, that's so easy to debunk, it's ridiculous. For example, I remember not too long ago, there was a bipartisan bill where Democrats and Republicans agreed to further deregulate Wall Street. Now, is that a good thing? Because corrupt Democrats and Republicans agreed to it? 
Of course not. Of course not. Now, are there examples of good bipartisanship? Yes, but every time there's been good bipartisanship, it's on, it's on the terms of the left. So, for example, when Bernie Sanders worked with Mike Lee and they tried to end the genocide in Yemen, the U.S. support for the genocide in Yemen, we got that through. Now, Donald Trump vetoed it because he's a monster and he's bought by Saudi Arabia, but that was an example of good bipartisanship. I got bad news for everybody. Most of the time, the Democrats and Republicans in Washington, D.C. are agreeing on something. It's to screw you or continue war. So beware bipartisanship, because most of the time they're agreeing on the terms of the right. So this notion that like bipartisanship is inherently good is just lazy. It's just lazy. We came to an agreement, so therefore the agreement must be right. Not if everybody in the room is unreasonable or everybody in the room is corrupt. Then when you guys agree, it's terrifying. In fact, Barack Obama apparently recently said, oh, I support Joe Manchin's um, compromise voting rights bill. Compromise voting rights bill? Guys, I got news for you. That includes voter ID laws. Why would you agree to that? Why would you agree to that when we know that voter ID laws are ruse to try to suppress turnout? That's what Republicans do. So he agrees to something that's bad, and then, by the way, what happens? In that instance, I don't think any Republican has hopped on board. So you agree to the shittier proposal, and then you still get your eyes spit in. What are you doing? But this is part and parcel of being a corporate Democrat. Now, I want to get back to the first point, because she says, I've been a supporter of the filibuster because it's a tool that protects the democracy of our nation. Regardless of what you personally think of the filibuster, it is by definition undemocratic, small d democratic. Because the whole point is, a simple majority is not going to get you a victory. The whole point is you need 60 people in a 100-person body. How can you argue that that's preserving democracy when the whole point of the filibuster is to be undemocratic? I mean, it blows my mind. Do words not have meaning anymore? And she's like, I'm proving that bipartisanship is possible. Is bipartisanship possible when you have 50 or 51 Democratic senators and you need 60 votes to get anything done, do you, even in that situation, do you believe that bipartisanship is possible? Because in that scenario, I got news for you. It's not, unless you literally pass a bill that says, I want to do everything that the Republicans want to do. And even then they might say no, because they're obstructionist. So every part of this is absolutely infuriating. Now, I said at the beginning I was going to get back to um, some interesting facts about the filibuster. This idea that the filibuster is like set in stone, it's part of our country, you can never change it, doing so is, you know, spitting in the eye of tradition, nonsense. So the filibuster has been reformed. It was reformed in 1996. It was reformed in 2011. It was reformed in 2013. It was reformed in 2017. They made some changes in 2019. It's reformed all the time. They do it all the time. So, for example, one of the things that you used to need 60 votes for is a Supreme Court nomination. Mitch McConnell said, eh, wrong. Now you need a simple majority for that. That's what happened in the Trump years. Not only did they change it for nominations, they changed it for the final votes to get on the Supreme Court. That used to be 60. They were like, we're just going to change the filibuster and make it so that only requires 51 votes. That's exactly what they did. And that's how they got so many Supreme Court appointments. If you don't overturn the filibuster now or eliminate the filibuster now, you think that in the future the Republican Party is going to say, we agree with the Democrats, and we're not going to overturn the filibuster either. 
You know, the second they get power and they only have 51 votes, they're going to get rid of the filibuster. Duh. Of course that's what they're going to do. So, or they're going to reform it. Again, I'm going to get back to that point in a second. But um, another thing that used to require 60 votes, but doesn't require 60 votes now, they did the Congressional Review Act, which changed the filibuster, which made it so that if Congress wants to overturn recent federal agency regulations, they only need a simple majority. There's, of course, budget reconciliation. So certain things involving the budget only need 51 votes. So there's all these these loopholes and these carve-outs in dealing with the filibuster. So this idea that it's like set in stone, and that's not true. And again, these, this is a rule, and a rule can be changed. So, and you only need a simple majority to change the rule, by the way. That's it. So there were, get this, this fact is amazing, and nobody ever talks about this in mainstream media. There have been, there are 161 provisions of law that prevent some future piece of legislation from being filibustered on the floor of the Senate. There's 161 exceptions to the filibuster. That includes fast-tracking votes on trade negotiations, expediting votes on military-based closures, allowing Congress to bypass the filibuster for certain regulatory and budget matters, so on and so forth. There are 161 exemptions to the filibuster. Now, you're telling me that the Democrats not only won't eliminate the filibuster, but they won't even do more carve-outs? You won't even give yourself more cracks at budget reconciliation, for example? You won't even override the Senate parliamentarian who's a low-level staffer who has no power? Oh, it is an absolute joke. So now we get to the real point of this segment. What do you do if you're Joe Biden and you're in this situation right now where you have Manchin and you have Cinema? And they're like, we're not going to change the filibuster. And you maybe have, there could be up to eight Democratic senators who are like, I don't know if I want to do that. Could be up to eight of them. So here's what you do. First and foremost, you go on a fact-finding mission to determine who actually is against it. Because I got news for you. Some of them can be convinced even though they're pretending they can't be. So there was a leaked audio of Joe Manchin where he said, Mm, you know, I say publicly I'm against it, but I, would be, I could be in favor of reforming it. There was one time he said, maybe go back to the talking filibuster and make it harder for them to filibuster. There was another time he said, maybe change the filibuster to 55 votes instead of 60 votes. That would be a huge difference, right? So he's open to reform. This is what he, said behind, this is what he says behind closed doors. There's a public position and a private position. His private position, you can work with a lot more. So if I'm Joe Biden, you figure out where everybody actually stands up front. You call a meeting with them, and then you propose them the very basic carrot and stick approach. Listen, I'm going to put it plain for you guys. If you are with us in either getting rid of the filibuster or some other way around it, then I'm going to be your best friend. Joe Manchin, what do you want for West Virginia? You want another military base in West Virginia? You want more money for infrastructure projects? Do you want a spot in the administration? What do you want? What do you need? Whatever you want, I got you. So if you work with me, there are going to be benefits. And I will sing your praises as well from the bully pulpit. And, and I'll talk about how you save democracy. They'll build statues for you. You say that to Manchin. You say that to cinema. You say that to anybody who's on the fence or against you. And then you say, but if you're against me, I'm going to make your life a living hell and your career is done. You don't cross the president of the United States of America. By the way, you know what Biden's approval rating is right now? You're going to be amazed by this. It's almost 
60%. It's 56%. You know who has an approval rating? Nowhere near that. Any senators in the entire country. Nobody's anywhere close to that. So you say to Joe Manchin, and you say to Kirsten Sinema, and you say to whoever else might be on the fence or against it, I will use my bully pulpit, and I will do exactly that. I will bully your punk ass. And here's what you threaten them with. You say, if you don't work with me, I'm going to do my first Oval Office address, and you know who it's going to be on? You guys. I'm going to do an Oval Office address. I'm going to call you out by name, and I'm going to say, you're destroying democracy, and that getting you out of office is our number one priority, and we're going to fund primary opponents against you, and we're going to do everything we can to get you out of there, make sure you have no career afterwards, and make you a national pariah. That's what you do if you're Joe Biden. Now, understand something. If you do that hard sell and you say, you have to be in favor of eliminating the filibuster. That's what I'm talking about here, eliminating the filibuster. And if you aren't, then this is what I'm going to do. You know what will happen? You give them two or three days to think about it, right? Go ahead. You're dismissed. Get them out of your office. They're going to call you back. And you know what they're going to say? Go, I, you know, what happened was the sun was in my eyes and me and Craig and them was down by the Safeway. And when I was talking to everybody about the thing in them and stuff, that I, see, I want, I want to make a deal. I want to work with you. And that's when the ideas will be brought up. What if we just reformed it back to the talking filibuster? I could support that. They're going to buckle. They're going to fucking buckle. Without a doubt, they're going to buckle if you give them the offer they can't refuse. And that is an offer they can't refuse. And so instead of saying, okay, I'm in favor of eliminating the filibuster, they'll be, okay, I'll do the talking filibuster, or I'll change it to 55 votes, or I'm in favor of, you know, giving up 10 cracks at reconciliation and ignoring the parliamentarian when the parliamentarian says you can't do X, Y, or Z. We'll override that. That's what will happen. That's what will happen. There are other things you could do, too, that, are, that were interesting um, – proposals, like instead of changing the rules so that instead of like having one person be able to filibuster, you need like three or four or five, like there's other ways to reform it, to change the rule, to make it so that you're seriously, seriously weakening the filibuster. So they will counter offer with something. And then when they counter offer with something, Biden can either counter offer again and make it, you know, hurt the filibuster even more, or he can accept and say, you got yourself a deal. We're going to take the filibuster as it currently exists and reform it back to the original talking filibuster, which will greatly limit the number of times Republicans can filibuster. You know, or we'll have 10 cracks at budget reconciliation instead of two, whatever the fuck it was. And that'll mean you'll get a lot more of the agenda passed. But if you don't do the thing I'm describing, I need everybody to understand this very clearly. Biden's first term is completely over. Completely. The only way it wouldn't be is if Biden suddenly grew a spine and grew some principles and decided, I'm going to, through executive order, I'm going to legalize marijuana. Through executive order, I'm going to eliminate student loan debt. Because there's a lot of things he could do through executive order, and he's the commander in chief. He could actually end wars instead of just talking about it and reducing. So there are things he could do, but all the indications are he's not going to do much else at all through executive order. So if we don't have some movement on the filibuster, his whole, the rest of his term is over. It's done. He's not getting anything else done. And so when you look at 
that fact, it's beyond hilarious that there were all these articles saying he's FDR 2.0. He's the next iteration of FDR. I mean, this is, FDR's rolling over in his grave looking at this situation. He's like, are you fucking kidding me? You're not going to play hardball with these politicians? You're not going to twist their arms? You're not going to find a way to get them to support some sort of reform to the filibuster that's real? Beyond ineffectual. But now, here's the most damning point of all of it. I give you all this, what Biden should do about the filibuster. But the fact of the matter is, he's not even in favor of getting rid of the filibuster. Maybe he's open to reforming it, but he's not even in favor of eliminating the filibuster, which means his opening negotiation position, if he even has the conversation with these senators, is going to be like, I want to take it back to the talking filibuster or something like that. And then they'll whittle him down from there, and you might get some change in the filibuster that's really ineffectual. So, in other words, Biden is shooting himself in the foot. He's saying, I, almost like, I want my, my term to be over. That's basically what he's doing. So... All this talk comes to nothing because he doesn't even want to do it. So what does that tell you guys? And this is probably the most important point. What does that tell you? There are a lot of corporate Democrats where this is exactly who they are. It's almost like they're paid to lose. It's almost like they're elected to be the pushover, to be the weakling, to get a center-right agenda through, you know, to be moderately and nominally different on social issues where they're better on social issues, but then on every economic issue. It's just like, yeah, I sort of half agree with the Republicans and my agenda will reflect that. And here we are. And so it's not with a lot of Democrats, corporate Democrats, right-wing Democrats, it's not that they're weak. It's that they simply don't agree with us and they prefer this outcome of doing nothing. That's what it is. And of course, there's always corruption when you talk about the corporate Democrats. And when you talk about the Republicans. So they're doing the bidding of their donors. That's one of the reasons why they don't want a real bold agenda, a real FDR 2.0 agenda. So here we are. Here we are. I just explained to you exactly how Joe Biden can reform the filibuster, make it real, and then get more of his agenda implemented. And I have zero faith he's doing any of the things I described. And I have zero faith he even wants to do those things. So it's beyond embarrassing, and I hope all of you recognize it at this point. Okay. Next. All right, time to, time to be upset. Uh, Ocasio-Cortez, this fucking hurts. Here we go. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez went on Morning Joe. Now, in a world that makes sense, she'd go on Morning Joe, and she would run circles around them, and she would, you know, talk policy and make them look silly and all that stuff. That's not what happens here. She goes on Morning Joe to yuck it up with establishment media cretins. And there's this little exchange, which is the most damning admission I've ever seen. Take a look at this. The Democratic Party. And over the past um, three or four months, 
We've talked a lot about Joe Manchin. We've talked a lot about getting to 50 votes. We've talked a lot about uh, whether it's possible to get to 60 votes. We've talked about the filibuster. I have noticed that uh, you and uh, Bernie and let's just say some, some, some uh, of the, the more high-profile progressive leaders, you all have, have uh, held your tongue far more than when, when I was in Congress. And I was on the other side. You know, we would we would complain every three minutes about it doesn't cut enough. We're not getting close enough to balancing the budget. And I'm just I've been curious. Um, how many, first of all, have you done it? Because we could never do it. Uh, is, there, is there more of a plan to, to let the moderates work through this, let them try to get to where they go, and then we work behind the scenes and, yeah. and meet them well, behind I do the think, scenes? Um, I do think that there has been a large amount of behind the scenes work. That breaks my heart when I see that. That breaks my heart when I see that. She says there's been a lot of behind the scenes work going on, which is why you're getting rolled in every single debate. Remember when she said, we can't do force to vote for Medicare for all because we've got to keep our powder dry for a fight we could actually win, like $15 minimum wage. Then the fight for $15 minimum wage came up, and they instantly lost. So I submit to you, if her strategy was the correct strategy of talk behind the scenes, we'd have $15 minimum wage they would have used their leverage and voted as a block in the House and blocked anything unless it included the $15 minimum wage, therefore putting pressure on Biden to get the fewer number of people who are against the $15 minimum wage, the seven or eight or whatever it was. Now you're forced to get them on the record and for the $15 minimum wage because there are more people are for it than against it. So do you understand? You can get a block of like 12 people who are saying, I'm not voting for shit unless it has a $15 minimum wage in it in the last reconciliation package. And if you have eight people who say, we're not voting for it with the $15 minimum wage in it, 12 is more than eight. And so would you rather change 12 people's minds or eight people's minds? So he would be forced to get to work to try to convince the eight senators, you have to vote for this package with the $15 minimum wage. You have to do it. This is a must-pass bill. There's no ends if or buts about it. I don't care if it only has $15 minimum wage. You have to do it. These crazy progressives aren't going to vote for anything unless it has a $15 minimum wage in it. They didn't do that. They didn't do that at all. They rolled over. Oh, it's just so sad. Oh, it's just so sad. So uh, Joe Scarborough actually said something interesting there. He said to her, like, is your plan to let the moderates work through it, and then you interject, and then you bring up your concerns? And she basically says, like, yeah, we're working a lot behind the scenes. I already explained why behind the scenes never works. The only tool you have is public pressure, and you're not using your public pressure. You're not going to beat these insider goons, these elites at Machiavellian backroom politics. You're always going to get destroyed because that's their home field. Your home field is the public. But her response was basically like, yeah, that's sort of what we're doing because we're working behind the scenes. So in other words, she's saying let the moderates take the lead, and then we say, oh, I don't like that, or I don't like that, or I want to change this, or I want to change this. Well, guess what, guys? You'll know this if, you ever, if you've ever been in sales. Whoever makes the first offer has the advantage because then you've laid the groundwork and set the terms, and then people only feel like they could deviate so much from what the first proposal is. 
And so, you know, if, if you charge somebody like, hey, how much is this used car? And they don't see that you own it for like, let's say 20 grand. And you're like, oh, it's 35 is how much it would cost you. Then they'll be like, whoa, that's a lot. Can you be more reasonable? What about 32? So you see, you see what happens? You made the first proposal and you really went above what you own it for, above cost. And then their counter proposal would be like, I, I, would, I can't accept it for that much, but I'll take it at 32. So you're still making 12 grand in profit on it. And the reason why you made so much money is you made the first offer. So you have a very big advantage because they would feel like if they propose 35 for it and I come in at 22, then I look ridiculous, right? So it, it sort of forces people to be more on your terms. So that's exactly what's happening with these bills behind the scenes. The moderates take the lead. They come up with, hey, here's the bill that we're thinking of. And then the progressives come in. I don't know. I don't like the le- These bills have nothing in it that's progressive. Would you mind if we get one or two crumbs of progressivism, please? And then they're like, no. We'll give you 0.06% of a crumb, maybe. And you can fuck off. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. Guys, they simply don't know what they're doing. This is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez admitting that the whole reason she was sent to D.C., she's not abiding by it. She's not doing what her mission was. And I know what her mission was because I co-founded the group. I told you guys this before, but the original name of Justice Democrats, the name that we thought we were going to go with, was the Left Tea Party. Now, we decided against it because the Tea Party was sort of despised by the media and and it would have given us bad press. It would have had a negative connotation right off the bat. Philosophy was to be the left Tea Party. What did the Tea Party do? Well, sort of like what Scarborough was alluding to there, and I don't think he was in the Tea Party, but it's the same idea. He was like, we all went in there. We all couldn't shut up. We were saying, we want this, we want this, we want this, and we would argue for it every three minutes. And that's the idea. So you go in there, and not only do you hate the opposition party, you hate the leaders of your own party, and you make their life a living hell, and you drag the Overton window in your direction. So if they couldn't corral you, if they couldn't control you, if you're out there always arguing for these left-wing positions very publicly, then you're dragging that Overton window and forcing them to go further left. And she's not doing that. She's not holding Pelosi accountable. They're not holding Schumer accountable. She said, thank you for the credit when told by Joe Scarborough, you guys aren't really making any noise. You guys are kind of staying in line for Joe Biden. She says, thank you for the credit, and then she laughs. So in other words, they're simply not doing the thing that they were sent there to do. They were sent there to raise hell. She once said, I'd rather be a one-term congressperson that gets something done than be there forever and get nothing done. Well, now, seems like she could be there as long as she wants and she's not getting anything done. It really does break my heart, guys. The last thing I want to do is come out here and dump on the group that I co-founded. But i got to tell you guys the truth. i got to tell you, again, it would be one thing if they were trying the strategy and just failing, because then I could come out here and tell you guys they're literally doing everything they can and it's not working because there's not enough of them or whatever. But they're just not doing that strategy. And since they're not doing that strategy, my job is to come out here and tell you they need to do that strategy. 
because the thing that they're trying is not working. And if you don't agree with me, well, let me ask you. We have a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, and a Democratic House, and we don't have $15 minimum wage. We don't have Medicare for all. We don't have the public option. The list goes on and on of the things we don't have. We don't have paid maternity leave. We don't have paid vacation time by law. We don't have universal basic income or a recurring check. We don't have any of the things that we say we want the most. None of them. The proof is in the pudding. You can't have a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, and a Democratic House, and then all of a sudden you're making more and more excuses. Oh, we need more of you. Okay, but do you really need more when you have enough to block legislation and make demands? You don't. You just need to have a fucking spine and do the thing that we sent you there to do. Guys, you have leverage. You have power. Imagine if the Justice Democrats decided we will block every single piece of legislation from here on out unless and until Biden takes out that executive order pen and eliminates student loan debt. Or they could say, if they want to be a little more reasonable, eliminate $50,000 of student loan debt per person. Or they could say, legalize marijuana and take it off the Schedule One substances list. They could say, we will block every piece of legislation unless and until he does that. I don't want to hear it. It's not our fault. Oh, you, oh, they're blocking the pieces of legislation. How obstructionist are they? It's not on me, bitch. It's on Joe Biden. All he has to do is sign an executive order that 60% of the American people agree with to legalize marijuana. You're going to blame me when he's standing in the way of what 60% of the American people want, that's not on me, that's on him. I'm representing the democratic will of the American people. He's not, he's authoritarian, he's standing in the way. Imagine if they did that. Imagine if they did that. We're blocking every piece of legislation. They all call a press conference. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, whoever, Jamal Bowman, all of them call a press conference and they say it very, very clearly. This isn't a negotiation, this isn't a debate. I'm gonna make this crystal clear, I'm gonna make it super simple. Nothing else will get done unless and until Joe Biden legalizes marijuana and eliminates student loan debt. He has the authority to do it. He has the ability to do it. I don't want to hear any excuses. These are overwhelmingly popular ideas. We're not letting anything through until you do it. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at him. He's standing in the way of what the American people want. We will easily step out of the way. All you've got to do is take out that executive order pen and do the right thing. We're done here. Five-minute press conference. And you'd be able to get a lot they don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. They'd rather negotiate behind the scenes, get Dickie McGee's acts from that, let the moderates take control, and then you come in and interject and say, I'd make this little change or that little change. Understand something, guys. I know. I do. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other Justice Democrats truly believe that this is the better way to get more progressive change in the long run. I know that sounds ridiculous, but that is what they think. They think, oh, you need to get along with people in order to get stuff done. You need to be in good graces of leadership in order to get stuff done. So I must stay in the good graces of leadership and take my wins wherever I can get them. They truly believe that they can get more with a carrot than a stick and that behind the scenes you must have operational relationships with these people. They definitely believe that, but they're fucking wrong. They're fucking wrong. And if they were correct, and if that was ever the way that the left won, we'd already have a bunch of evidence of it. We have a bunch of examples of it, but we don't have any examples of it. The only way the left ever wins anything, the outside inside game, is, you know, FDR was pushed by socialists and communists and they were throwing their weight around and they were making demands and then FDR had to grow a fucking spine and appease his base and he had to work from the outside. You had the civil rights movement push. Lyndon B. Johnson, a deep 
Southern racist who threw around the N-word like nothing. Hard E-R. And he's the one that signed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act? How the fuck did that happen? Pressure. Outside-inside game. That's how. It never works quietly, silently behind the scenes when it comes to left-wing change. It's movements. It's energy. It's the people. It's using your leverage. Using the bully pulpit. All AOC and the Justice Democrats have, all they have, are the people on their side. They're brand new there. They don't have any institutional power. They don't know how to play these Machiavellian games. They're not going to outmaneuver Nancy Pelosi. So why are you fighting it on their turf? I just think it's naive to think like, oh, if we just go along to get along, we'll get more wins that way. Because those, those fuckers will lie straight to your face. Oh, yeah, I believe in the same things you believe in. No, they don't. No, they don't. And by the way, for the 9,000th time, this is the part where a lot of you disagree with me. But you're fucking wrong. They are not corrupt. Corrupt means they take money from donors and they do the bidding of the donors. They're not doing that. They are naive and incredibly weak. And they're deathly afraid, too, that if they play the outside game that the media will smear them from now until forever. And they're right about that. But you can fight back and you can smear back. And it doesn't matter that you're not part of the cool kids club anymore. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that a lot of people are going to hate you and try to make you out to be the boogeyman and they're going to say you're with the Republicans when you do obstruction stuff. That doesn't matter. You can speak for yourself. You can respond. You can fight back. And uh, this was my problem, is I fucked up because we didn't really vet for leadership qualities. We only vetted for, do you agree with us on the policies? They agree with us on the policies. Great. They agree with us on the policies and they were likable enough to get elected. We're good. But it turns out you need a lot more than that. Not only do you need to agree on the policies, you need to have real strong leadership qualities where you're willing to take the fire, the incoming fire. And I just don't think they are. I think Washington has changed them. When I talk about they're not corrupt, I mean financial corruption. They're not taking money from donors and doing the bidding of the donors. But they are effectively rolling over for the people who are like that. So... At the end of the day, it doesn't appear like they're manifest as much of a difference. If you're letting Pelosi and the corrupt ones run the show and you're barely making any changes and barely getting anything done, if getting anything done at all. So I need everybody to understand there's a, there's a qualitative difference between being corrupt and being naive and weak. And they are definitely naive and weak. And that's not a defense of them. It's just an objective statement of what is true. Either way, this is this is the most heartbreaking thing yet that she's done, for sure, for sure. Because it shows not only is she wrong, she's like arrogantly convinced she's right as she's dead wrong. Even though they have nothing to show for their strategy, even though they'll continue to get nothing. She's like, thank you. Thank you for the credit. And then she laughs when she's told, you're not fighting at all. You're working behind the scenes instead of Using your power in the bully pulpit and voting as a block and really throwing your weight around. The closest they've gotten to fighting just happened recently where they said, get this, this is hilarious. We'll vote for the bipartisan reconciliation bill, by the way, or no, excuse me, not bipartisan reconciliation bill, bipartisan infrastructure bill, um, which is a Wall Street takeover. It's a privatization racket. It has a regressive tax in it, which raises taxes on working people the gas tax. 
taxes electric cars. We'll vote for that bill only if we have a simultaneous reconciliation bill that's partisan, that we get the stuff we really want in it. Why the fuck do you think anybody who even agrees to that verbally is going to stick to that? No, they'll just get your vote to pass the shitty bipartisan one, and then they'll turn around and say, oh, did I say I was going to vote for the partisan one? Oops, I disagree now. I'm not for it now. And then you will have voted for the partisan shitty one, and you're not going to get the things that have what you want in it, like Medicare at 60, for example. There's a bunch of good things in in the partisan one that Schumer and um, Bernie came up with. But that's just, honestly, this is just a trick to try to get progressives in line to vote for the bipartisan one, and then the partisan one will fail, and they'll be like, fuck, well, we tried, and it didn't work. No, you say, you say, put it all in one bill, and here are my red lines. I won't vote for it if it has X, Y, and, and, or Z in it, and I will vote for it if it has this in it. Actually throw your weight around. What like a weird half-assed way to fight? It's really a way to get rolled, and that's what would happen. That's the closest they've come to fighting is by saying, I'll vote for your shitty bipartisan infrastructure bill if we also do a reconciliation bill. Okay, but the bipartisan one will pass and the reconciliation one won't, and you'll look ridiculous. God, man. Uh, Honestly, shame on all of them. We had an opportunity here. We had an opportunity for the left to really define the agenda. If Bernie and all of the, uh, the Justice Democrats really organized, voted as a block, stayed strong, were clear with their messaging, and were willing to take the hate from the media, and the media would tell, say, oh, they're with the Republicans if they obstruct for certain demands, we could have won on a lot of this shit. We could have won. Instead, they're playing nice, and they're getting basically nothing. That's not to say that, you know, the, the COVID relief bill wasn't a hell of a lot better than the CARES Act, and that's not to say that the $1,400 checks weren't a lot better than not having them, or the child tax credit isn't a lot better than not having it. All that stuff is true, but this is the best you could do when you have a Democratic president, Democratic Senate, and Democratic House. None of our main priorities are getting through. I mean, it's just, it's pathetic. So they're certainly not the same, and they're certainly not doing the thing they were sent there to do. And it breaks my heart to say it. I want nothing more for them than for them to flip on a dime and start doing the proper strategy because it's never too late to do the right strategy. But they're not doing it. And the final point I'll make is this. Um, it's funny that people, it doesn't matter how clear you are when you say stuff. If people have a perception of you, sometimes they cling to it like a kid to a fucking safety blankie. And um, it's hilarious that people listen to my really poignant criticism of the group I fucking co-founded, and they think, oh, he's just a fucking, he's just a regular Democrat. He's always going to defend the Justice Democrats. Does this sound like I'm defending them to you right now? Does this sound like I'm defending them to you? I'm doing anything but defending them. Every bridge I had to these people has been completely burned eight times over. And people will still say, oh, he's just fucking Justice Democrat. He's always going to defend them or whatever. Nonsense. But I will say this, because everybody who hears this, then they have this silly idea of like, Well, then obviously the answer is like a third-party approach. Just because this didn't work well does not mean that the further pipe dream is going to work. Because I got news for you. I think the establishment loves nothing more than when people check out of the system and try to work on a project like that. You want to know why? It's self-disenfranchisement. I wish it wasn't that, because I would love it if we had a new party that was actually principled and stuck to the 
to what they said they were going to do. But it's self-disenfranchisement because they know, the establishment knows that one of these efforts is not going to go anywhere. You want to know why? Because it's been tried a thousand times in modern history, and it's never fucking worked. Never. Look at the Green Party. Look at the, what's it called, the one that uh, Jesse Ventura and Trump, or I think the Reform Party or something like that. This has been tried a thousand times over, guys. And the thing that's extra pathetic is that in those instances, they can't even get universal ballot access. Like, see, to me, that's step one. Step one is, can you get ballot access? Because if you don't have ballot access, you are literally just wasting everybody's time. It is self-disenfranchisement. Now, if you get a party created and you get universal ballot access, well, now you're talking because at least you're in the game. If you don't have ballot access, you're not in the fucking game. None of these, even the Green Party, which is like the most successful of all of the left-wing third parties, they only have ballot access in like 46 or 48 states. So, it's like, they want you to waste energy on something that can never succeed. That's what they want you to do. That's what they want you to do. Now, again, this isn't me saying that our approach did work, because it didn't work. They're not even doing the strategy that they were sent there to do. But this is me saying that if you think it's as simple as, well, the answer is just start a third party from scratch. Again, I brought this example up a thousand times, but that's like saying, yeah, we'll just get RC Cola to be more popular than Pepsi and Coca-Cola. Good luck with that. No, I mean it. Seriously, good luck with that. If you get the ballot access and, and you try to do it and you succeed, I'll fucking genuflect at your altar, dog. But I find it really silly that people who otherwise consider themselves like truth tellers are not being honest about the prospects of doing it that way. And this idea, like, why is it viewed that, like, well, you guys failed, but third party didn't fail. Not only did they fail, they failed way worse and way earlier than we failed. I'm not kidding about that. Like, go ahead. You look. When were all these third parties, left-wing third parties created? And how many people have they gotten elected? Somehow they get a mulligan and none of their failures count, but ours do count? That makes no sense. How long have these parties existed? So how many Green Party members or People Party members do we have at the state level anywhere? Even the state level anywhere. How many do we have in Congress? How many do we have in the Senate? You can't even get a congressman or a senator elected, and people think there's going to be, like, a president who gets in there in how long? Obviously, you don't, nobody in their right mind can believe it could happen now or in the next election cycle or the one after that. What is it, a 100-year project? Do we have 100 years to waste? And so there's people who are, like, mad at Nina Turner, for example, for running as a Democrat. That's literally the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Clearly, if you want to win and you want to win right now, you don't have a fucking choice. You don't have a choice. Guys, nobody who tried the strategy of taking over the Democratic Party for the actual left, nobody who tried that strategy actually likes the Democratic Party. None of us do. We fucking despise the Democratic Party. We despise them. We're trying to use whatever vehicle is the easiest and the quickest to get the change and get it now. That's the idea of it. So I just want everybody to understand, sometimes people hear the things I say and, and how, how much I go after Justice Democrats and think like, well, obviously, so that strategy is totally done now, so now we've got to try this other one, which is even harder and has failed even worse. And that's use your brain. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. But, but I don't want to end this on a doomer note because I do have good news for everybody. The good news is, And this is what we all agree on. 
whether you're doing some third-party shit or you were doing the Justice Democrat shit, there are tried-and-true methods that will always work, always. So, for example, every, do everything you can to increase unionization. Work hard, organize on the ground, do unionization. That's one thing that definitely will work. Protest movements, working for protest movements or trying to organize the granddaddy of them all that could have a real effect, a general strike. That can get changed and that can get changed quickly. It's just really hard to organize it, but it can be organized. Okay, that's another thing. And the other thing is specific issue advocacy. So namely, it's not even like, oh, we need to get the different people elected so then we could work on it. No, it's, I don't give a fuck who's in there. You give me whoever's already in there and let's work on these fuckers right now. So take a specific issue, you organize like a motherfucker, and you do everything you can right now to get your issues implemented. So if you happen to be at the state level, or if you happen to be doing something locally, a lot of places have direct ballot initiatives. Try to get whatever the main issue is that you care about, whether it's universal health care, legalizing marijuana, whatever. Try to get something voted on directly at the state or, or local level. And they have those things. And oftentimes, the left wins on those things. I told you this. I tell you guys this all the time. When it comes to direct ballot initiatives, the left wins like 80% of the time. Whether it's legalizing weed, raising the minimum wage. We've gotten a number of minimum wage increases by doing direct issue advocacy. So I don't wanna, I'm not here to rain on everybody's parade. And even though I'm very vituperative, I wish anybody luck who's still trying to take over the Democratic Party for the actual left positions, I want nothing more than Nina Turner to win. And even though I'm incredibly hard on them, the Justice Democrats and third-party people, I still wish you success, even though I think it's self-disenfranchisement and largely wasted energy. I still wish you success if you're actually going to win on the policies. But the thing that we all must unite on and must agree to, have to, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, increasing unionization, organizing, protest movements, general strike, and specific issue advocacy. That's what we all have to agree on. We have to take the lemons that we have right now, and there's a lot of lemons, and turn it into lemonade. Because we don't, we don't have the luxury of just sitting back and waiting. So there it is, guys. There it is. I'm more than happy to admit that the Justice Democrats um, experiment failed. But you know what else has failed? The third party efforts. They failed, and they failed way worse. They never got anybody fucking elected. They can't crack fucking 5% in the general election. So it's all failed. But that doesn't mean you stop working. You still keep fighting. You still try the all-the-above approach. But first and foremost, all the efforts, unionization, protest movements, general strike, and specific issue advocacy. That's my breakdown, and as I see it right now. Okay, next. Next, 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 next. This story is really incredible. Credit to Ken Klippenstein for getting this. He says the following, new U.S. military training document calls socialists a terrorist ideology and lists them alongside neo-Nazis amid Pentagon crackdown on domestic extremism per counterterrorism training material leaked to me. 
So they call socialists a terrorist ideology. Um, by the way, when you read through it, it's actually worse than that. They don't just call terrorists, they don't just call socialists a terrorist ideology, excuse me. They also call anarchists a terrorist ideology. There's even um, a part of the training manual or like a slideshow where they're discussing terrorism and they have a symbol that represents Al-Qaeda next to a Black Panther symbol. That's on the same page while discussing terrorism. This is very similar to stuff we learned not that long ago where the FBI considers black identity extremists um, ju as just as big of a threat as um, white supremacist terrorists or sovereign citizens terrorists. They consider Antifa on the same level that they consider the white supremacists and the sovereign citizens and the anti-government extremists. Um, there's, a, there's a really important lesson to take away from this, guys. There really is. Namely... You cannot trust the FBI, the CIA, the DHS, the Pentagon, the federal government, and, and the executive agencies, because this is the shit that they really do. They do shit like sending a letter to Martin Luther King Jr. saying, you should probably kill yourself because we know you're a cheater. If you listen to David Talbot, author of The Devil's Chessboard, CIA does shit like, assassinates JFK. That's what Dulles did, you know? So, and there's a problem. There's a huge problem on the left, and this has come about relatively recently, but when you had Russiagate, what happened? So many people on the left started un uncritically parroting whatever the CIA or the FBI would say. They'd act like, well, these guys are the law enforcement people, and they're always telling the truth, and they would go after the Trump administration to, court, to score cheap partisan political points. That's what they did. Not just that, the January 6th attempted insurrection. People have taken that and said, well, now we have to crack down. What are we doing? We got to go after these people. We got to make sure this never happens again. But how do they do that? Well, they do that by further entrenching their power, further taking away the rights of the American people. Look at what happened after 9-11. We had the Patriot Act. Sounds like something everybody should support, right? I'm a patriot. I'm for the Patriot Act. The Patriot Act is illegal and unconstitutional NSA spying on all Americans. It's data collection on all Americans. That's not a reasonable response. That's some authoritarian bullshit. And people are going to use Russiagate in January 6th, and they're going, to, they're going to use that, they already did, to rehabilitate the image of these executive agencies. Meanwhile, this is what they're actually doing. They consider socialists just like fascists. Anarchists are just like fascists. White supremacist terrorism, they think, is equal to, like, black identity extremism. And so, what's the main point here? They are spying on all of us. We talked about this yesterday on the show. But um, Joe Biden. Joe Biden is spying on anti-capitalist extremists. People who are against globalization, they consider extremists. So, do you understand? It's anybody who deviates from the status quo. Now, I'm not saying that it's impossible for somebody to deviate from the status quo and be violent. Of course that's possible. But it's also overwhelmingly the case that people who deviate from the status quo just have their own ideology and want to change things for the better in their mind. But this is what they do. They believe in horseshoe theory. They think the far right and the far left are equally terrible, and they're going to spy on everybody. And they're going to infiltrate the movements. They probably already have infiltrated the movements. You're crazy if you don't think that Antifa and Black Lives Matter 
haven't been infiltrated. Of course they've been infiltrated. And they try to take everything down from within, regardless of what the, the substance of the movement is. You can have a movement that's fighting for Medicare for all, and they've infiltrated under the guise of socialists or terrorists, and they try to take down the Medicare for all movement. This is how egregious they are. So credit to Ken Klippenstein for getting this. This is how they view you. This is how they view you. And by the way, we all know this too. They, they don't know the difference between socialists and democratic socialists and social democrats. To them, it's all the same. To them, if you're roughly where Bernie is on the spectrum and left of it, you're equal to a terrorist. And so they're going to spy on you and they're going to infiltrate your movements and they're going to try to take it down. Anything that threatens the status quo is a threat to them. And left-wing movements always, by definition, threaten the status quo because we think the status quo is bullshit because it is. We have a country, we have an economy, we have a system that is completely rigged by Wall Street and the military-industrial complex and billionaires and multinational corporations. The system is broken. And if you question that system too much, you're on a list somewhere and you're being spied on and they're infiltrating your movements. And you're basically the same as Al-Qaeda. Imagine equating socialists with Al-Qaeda. There you have it. This is how they view you. So you do not give these people more power. Whatever issues arise, use the existing laws to go after people. Just like with after 9-11, use the existing system to do police work to find whoever are actual terrorists. They didn't. They did the Patriot Act and allowed themselves to spy on everybody. Can't give away all your freedom, all your liberties, all your rights because you're afraid of a boogeyman, but that's what they want you to do. And everybody on the left needs to be careful what they wish for because these are the people they want to give more power to. By the way, you know who else they want to give more power to? Um, Silicon Valley. And they want to give more power to these terrible social media companies. Please crack down on the bad people, Mark Zuckerberg or Jack. They want them to do that. And then guess what? You blink and all of a sudden, sure, they may have taken down some terrible white supremacist characters, but also they banned big Antifa accounts. It's always going to be like that. It's always going to come back to bite you in the ass if you advocate for censorship and deplatforming and um, taking away civil liberties and rights. So just a warning, man, and, and great job here from Ken Klippenstein getting this scoop. It really is disgusting, but that's how they view you. Okay, next. Let's have some fun. This story makes me giggle. So this is reported by Axios. The Hill, a Beltway-based print publication that receives significant national traffic to its digital website, is being more aggressively shopped by its owner, Jimmy Finkelstein, sources tell Axios. With broadcasting giant Nexstar Media Group, a source tells Axios. Finkelstein has held talks for years about offloading the publication, but sources who have been recently say those talks have gotten more serious amid a right deals market. Yeah, I'm sure that's why and as Finkelstein looks to capitalize on the outlet's success during the Trump-era boom. Sources say The Hill brings in over $20 million in annual revenue. Most of that revenue comes from digital advertising and branded content. It makes a few million annually from events. Another source disputes that number and says that revenue last year was about double that. 
Two sources say revenues and profits right now are historically high for the outlet. One source notes that there's been an aggressive focus on revenue for the past year as sale talks have become more serious. I love this. Now, my guess is the real reason why they're trying to sell it and trying to sell it ASAP is because now they're being thoroughly embarrassed. Why are they being embarrassed, you ask? Crystal and Sagar left, and this shit imploded like right now skis. The second Crystal and Sagar left, it was like, it was over. It was, it was done so. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Like, I know I'm being a dick, but that's okay. I'm kind of a dick. But go ahead, go to the hill, look at their fucking YouTube channel now, and look at the kind of numbers that they're getting on it. Just go look at it. Just go look at it. Go look at it. Go look at what the numbers were like when Crystal and Sagar were doing Rising. They made The Hill's YouTube channel. Yes, they would post other news clips on The Hill where it's like little clips of fucking Marco Rubio or some asshole saying something and big 47-second clip of, this is newsworthy. Most of them would get next to no views. Every now and then you'd have one that goes viral and takes off and gets you know, millions of views. But the bulk of the heavy lifting over at The Hill's YouTube channel was done by Crystal and Sagar on Rising. And they developed a pretty giant and dedicated audience. So you go back and you look at the numbers on the Hills YouTube channel when Crystal and Sagar were doing their show. Guess what? They did a ton of content and like probably the lowest that they would get on any video would be like 50,000 views. And they would regularly do an interesting radar and get over 500,000 views. So that was their range between like 50,000 and 500,000. Every now and then they get one with over a million. You go look at those numbers now, dog. Uh. Son, they're like, they're huffing and they're puffing and they're clawing and they're trying so hard to like, can we get over a thousand views on this video? The saddest part is that a lot of what they're doing is looking at the topics that did well for Crystal and Sagar and they're having new people who aren't passionate about this and don't really have developed ideologies, they're plugging in these new media creatures, elite media creatures into the seats, and they're trying to talk about, let's talk about Jeffrey Epstein, or let's talk about UFOs, or let's talk about Fauci and Lab Leak and Bill Gates. Let's talk about, let's talk about what crazy thing Pelosi is doing, or let's talk about how corrupt the Democrats and Republicans are, and they just, they're just, they can't get anything right. Now they're lucky if, if any video gets over 10,000 views, they're like throwing a party back there. So they went from 50,000 minimum to like over a million. That was the window. To now, it's like 367 views to like 12,000. And so it, is just, it was just instant implosion, instant. And now understand, I'm sure. So they get most of their revenue from um, the print stuff. And their print stuff's not terrible. I use their print stuff all the time. I'm sure they get most of their revenue from that, for sure. And I'm sure they get most of their revenue from these events that they do, right? But, but you cannot deny the thorough embarrassment that is having a YouTube channel, having a hit show, having a different, unique, interesting show, and then you go from that to, like, this new show is unwatchable, and, and 
They're, they've lost over 100,000 subscribers since Crystal and Sagar have left, and that number's still going down, son. Uh, they had like 1.3-something um, million subs, and then now it's like a race to, can they get under 1 million? Is it possible to get to like 1.3 million and then have a historic collapse to under 1 million? I... That would be, I think that would be a YouTube record if that happens. When you're like over 300,000 over a million, and then you might end up under a million? See, imagine if they had gotten like the YouTube plaque for the million thing. I don't know if they did. I don't think they did. But imagine they got that, and then like it collapses all the way back to like 940,000. What would happen? Would YouTube be like, listen, numbers are what they are. We're going to go ahead and need you to return that. You know what I'm saying? Like what would happen? It, listen, it's not a coincidence that at the same time they're trying to sell this, it's the same time that The Hill is being thoroughly embarrassed online. Because even though they make more money through the print stuff, um, even though the traffic in the print stuff is good, there are definitely people who are plugged in enough there to look at it and know, like, oh, we're just getting embarrassed now. And so it's almost like before everybody realizes how embarrassing this is, let's try to offload this thing. Because it's not going to be worth nearly as much now because one of the most interesting parts is now gone. So that is what I think is happening. And by the way, this shows you how out of touch mainstream media is too, because I'm sure there were a number of articles written on this. I only saw the Axios one, but nobody even mentioned what's happening online. Like this is a huge story online about how abysmal The Hill is doing and how it's unwatchable now and Crystal and Saga. It really puts in perspective how good Crystal and Saga are at their show. And everybody online is talking about it. There's been a thousand. Every you know, independent new media outlet has covered it and weighed in on it. But mainstream media is like just stenographer to whoever the brass are at the Hill. Yes, oh yes, let's talk about the Hill, a Beltway-based print publication, and they receive significant national traffic, and they're shopping it around. They're only shopping it around because they're doing so well, and they're so successful. Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> there's nothing strange or weird or terrible going on over there now. <laughs> this is how terrible mainstream media is. There was no, like, basic cursory look at what's actually going on over there. Nobody looked at the YouTube channel. Nobody saw the implosion. Nobody see, reads the comments on the videos, which basically every single one is like, boo, boo, go watch Breaking Points. That's Crystal and Sager's new show. Boo. So anyway, I was laughing my ass off when I saw that uh, the news broke last night that The Hill is looking for buyers for their outlet. And it just happens to coincide perfectly with Thorough embarrassment from their best hosts starting their own thing. So, anyway, I don't have to tell you guys. You already know. But go go check out Crystal and Sager's new show. It's called Breaking Points. Um, and they'll tell you the stories. I told you guys my story dealing with the Hill behind the scenes. They have their own stories. And I'm sure there there's a lot more than just the things that I experienced. And what I experienced was terrible. And I'm sure you've heard me talk about it a thousand times by now. But, um I know that they were, they were put off by, like, the ad money because they always felt like I'm critiquing X, Y, or Z and the company's taking money from the same people. There would be phone calls. You know, they've told stories of phone calls either from advertisers or politicians who are like, how dare you? You better rein them in. That's the way it works. It's a big club. It's a big club. Crystal and Sager didn't want to be part of that club. Now they're not. And it turns out without them, kind of sad and embarrassing and they are folding faster than a cheap lawn chair. So, 
quickly, quickly, unload it before anybody recognizes what happened with the YouTube channel. Too bad all of the internet already sees it and knows it, but whatever dipshit is, you know, thinking about purchasing a giant media outlet is probably so disconnected from the real world and from the internet that they're like, they don't even know, they won't even realize that they're stepping onto the deck of the Titanic. All right, next. Yesterday we got some uh, shocking news, I would say. This is CNN reporting on this. The United States government has seized dozens of U.S. website domains connected to Iran linked to what the U.S. says are disinformation efforts, a U.S. national security official told CNN. Some users are not able to access sites like PressTV.com, which is an Iranian state-run English language news outlet, when attempting to access users are seeing the following message. The domain PressTV.com has been seized by the United States government in accordance with a seizure warrant pursuant to 18 U.S.C. as part of a law enforcement action by the Bureau of Industry and Security, Office of Export Enforcement, and Federal Bureau of Investigation. Iran's semi-official FARS news agency on Tuesday reported the U.S. has blocked the websites of several news agencies, including the Iranian state-run PressTV. Quote, the U.S. administration blocked websites of several news agencies and TV channels, including PressTV, Al Masira, Masira, Al Alam, and Al Meloma on Tuesday in a flagrant violation of the freedom of the press, Fars tweeted. Al Masira, Masira is a Houthi-run outlet, and Al Alam is Iran's, I think that says Arabic news station, Arabic language news station, something like that. So there you have it. Now, I guess, let me go ahead and show you um, what it looks like when you go to the website. So BNO News shows this here. This website has been seized, and then you can see the seals that are put there and, and the, uh, the text. So, listen, this is, I mean, regardless of what you think of Iran, and I have many, many criticisms, this is authoritarian. I mean, that's just what this is. This is deeply, deeply authoritarian. And when other countries do similar things, we call it authoritarian, you know, when China bans Facebook. We're like, that's fucking, that's super authoritarian. What are you doing? If Russia bans U.S. stuff, we're like, that's fucking authoritarian. Iran bans U.S. stuff. And they do, by the way. That's authoritarian. But here we are doing it, and they come up with some, they they say some bullshit. Like, if you read the statute, and I did, but I'm forgetting it now, the statute that they quote, like, hey, here's why we're doing it, 18 U.S.C., part of law enforcement action, it's like, it has something to do with, like, there's a national emergency. Really? What's the emergency? What's going on? What's going on where it was, it was so important you take it down now? I don't know what their reasoning is, but this does happen to coincide at the exact same time Ibrahim Raisi was elected, and he's a religious fundamentalist, he's a conservative, he's a hardliner, as they call him, and Hassan Rouhani was a moderate. So hardliner is replacing a moderate when the moderates are in power, even though we've had terrible relations with Iran and it's our fault, the moderates are more open-minded, more tolerant, more willing to work with people. The hardliners are not. Raisi said, I'm not going to meet with Biden. Get back in the nuclear agreement. How about you do it? You guys broke it. You get back in it. I'm not saying anything to you. It's on you to get back in it. That's it. So as soon as he made those comments, it was very soon thereafter that they did this, that they seized uh, Press TV and other outlets. And again, Houthi-linked outlets, so that has to do with Yemen, the Shia um, the Shia group that has taken over Yemen. And, I mean, listen, call it what it is. It's flagrantly authoritarian. 
And it really is you don't believe in open dialogue and free speech. Now, don't get me wrong. Are you going to get a biased perspective from uh, Iranian TV, Iranian news? Of course you are. But you also get a biased perspective when the B- we have the BBC playing here, their perspective. You also get a biased perspective when you turn on CNN and MSNBC and Fox News. Fox News represents the Republican arm of the establishment. MSNBC represents the Democratic arm of the establishment. CNN represents just the establishment. You know, uh, whether it's a corporate outlet, whether it's a state-run outlet, everybody's got a perspective. There is no such thing as perfect objectivity. You can strive to be objective. And there's a difference, by the way, between neutrality and objectivity. They're not the same thing. Objectivity is telling the truth all the time. But even, like, I try my best to be objective about everything. But that doesn't mean that I don't have certain views and opinions that are a unique filter that I see the world through. Everybody has a filter. Everybody has beliefs. Everybody has ideas. Everybody has thoughts. Nobody's a robot and is perfectly objective. So, I mean, this is, by this logic, uh, we can ban ban stuff that Iran is broadcasting. By that logic, you can also ban stuff Russia is broadcasting. You can also ban stuff, forget just our official state enemies. You can do it with our allies. You can ban every perspective that's not what? Only Americans are allowed to talk in the United States of America, are allowed to broadcast in the United States of America. And you don't see a problem with that? I mean, this is the type of stuff that we pretend we're in favor of freedom, we're in favor of democracy, we're in favor, favor of rights, we're in favor of open discourse and dialogue, and then we go and do something like this. And this is the exact opposite of that. There's no spinning it. You can't do these, you know, high-minded, self-important lectures of the world about freedom and justice and rights and liberty and equality and, and then turn around and do shit like this. You can't do it. I mean... Even if the things they say are super biased in their direction, you still should allow it. Of course. Of course. You know, and also, I don't want to let us off the hook too much either because they use the words. I I love this. What? Oh, wait, hold on. Let me pull it up again. The words that they used are disinformation. Was it like flagrant disinformation? Let me get the exact words. No, they just say disinformation efforts. So Iran's doing disinformation efforts. What was it called when every mainstream media outlet in the U.S. pushed the Iraq war? By the way, we later learned it was based on complete lies. So we pushed a war based on lies. Would you call that disinformation efforts? And based on that, should you ban all of the mainstream media outlets in the U.S.? Take CNN off the air, MSNBC off the air, Fox News, all of them? By the way, don't answer that. I know a lot of you are like, yes, do that. No, as much as I hate them, they should be able to exist. But... Why not? Why not? Was it not a disinformation effort when they pushed Russiagate, which turned out there was no there there, and they couldn't get Trump on anything involving Russia? They were able to get a lot of people in his orbit for corruption and other things. Good. I'm happy they did. They didn't get anything on Russia. He's not Putin's puppet, like they were saying. Was that a disinformation effort? Should they be pulled down as a result of that? Was it a disinformation effort when they tried to cover up the 2016 stealing of the primary from Bernie Sanders? Was that a disinformation effort? Is it a disinformation effort when... They go after Julian Assange when Julian Assange was telling everybody the truth and leaking information that everybody had a right to know, like our government was killing civilians and journalists overseas. Is that a disinformation effort when you try to silence him? When, you, when Edward Snowden has to hide overseas in order 
to be free, even though he's a hero who exposed illegal NSA spying, is that a disinformation effort when everything said about him on U.S. media is negative? It's oftentimes a lie. Is that a disinformation effort? So when we do disinformation, it doesn't count as disinformation because we're us. And so what we do is okay by definition. When they do it, oh, my God, pull them down, ban them, it's over, can't allow it. It's ridiculous. And by the way, dare I say, when it comes to the issue of the Iranian nuclear agreement, their retelling of events is way more accurate than ours. Because it's true. We violated the deal. We pulled out of it. Joe Biden said, I'm going to get back in it, and they didn't get back in it yet. Trump ruined the deal. Biden said he's going to get back in. He hasn't got back in yet. If they explain those things, those are facts. So, I mean, in other ways, I'm sure they're biased. Of course, they're going to defend the regime in Iran across the board. Their deep social conservatism and stuff. I'm sure that's what they do. But is that a reason to ban them? No. None of these should be banned. So this is deeply authoritarian. Everybody needs to be against it. And you're not going to hear anybody say anything about this. The same people that crow about freedom of the press and they went after, remember that? They would go after Trump because Trump said something mean about Brian Stelter or whatever. Oh my God, he's cracking down on the free press. Now I'm sure Trump would, if he had the authority, he would have cracked down on the free press. So I'm not giving him a pass. But the same people that crowed about freedom of the press, they're not going to say anything about the U.S. government banning entire stations. (laughs) This doesn't count because of reasons and stuff and things because it's propaganda. There's a lot of propaganda from every perspective you can imagine, and we allow it all because that's what freedom is. And it's up to you to sort of weed through it and figure out what makes sense and what doesn't. But no, they're only banning specific kinds of propaganda. So this is pathetic. This is dumb. They absolutely should reverse it, and we'll see what happens. Okay. Let me do one more, and then I'll take a break. It's fucking hot in here, bro. It really is. It's getting hot in here, so suck off all these goats. I am getting so hot, I want to suck those goats off. I should probably post that as its own clip on YouTube. We get like 8 million views. All right. Milo Yiannopoulos. Milo Yapadapadidobadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadabadab
A month or so ago, I tossed my engagement ring into the Pacific Ocean, and I moved to Florida. I'm here, partly, to share my testimony uh, here on True News, but also to open a center, a clinic, for other men who have been suffering from same-sex attractions. Now, we started raising money. Fundraising has begun. We, over summer, will be interviewing therapists and thinking about where in Florida we should call home. He's opening a gay conversion therapy clinic. Dog, you're not a doctor. And by the way, even doctors couldn't make that shit real. Gay conversion therapy. Okay, uh, uh, guys, it's 2021. It's 2021 right now. I, I really have to explain all this stuff. How many times have I told you? You can't will your way out of your sexual attraction in the same way you can't will your way out of having to urinate or having to defecate. You can't just be like, I really want to change this. Don't pee, don't pee, don't pee, don't pee, don't pee, don't pee. At some point in the day, you're going to have to piss. I really want to change who I'm attracted to sexually. I'm sure this will work. He can't change that just as much as you, whoever's watching this, you viewer, can't change what you're into, what you're attracted to. I don't know if sexuality is hardwired. So in other words, the born that way thing. It's either hardwired or it's developed and created at a very young, impressionable age, and it's still not changeable. But it's one or the other. It's either it's hardwired in your head, so you're born that way, or you're not born that way, but your sexuality is imprinted from a young uh, developmental age, and then it, it's not, it doesn't change. It, there might be slight evolutions, but nothing as big as like, I'm attracted to that gender, now I want to be attracted to that gender. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Now, a few things I noticed in this video. Number one, he talks so fake. I don't know how anybody like watches this and thinks, that's my guy. He's, he's keeping it real. He's truth-telling. Everything is so dramatic and about my personal my personal story who doesn't see through that this isn't how anybody actually talks it's not like one of the things that actually makes somebody successful in new media and in independent media is like people have to feel like you're authentic and you're real and you're not putting on an act and you're talking in the same way that you would talk if you were sitting next to them at a bar he's the polar opposite of that which sort of is amazing because it makes me wonder how the hell he blew up at all in the first place. Probably because he was a conservative and he, he did the whole, like, I'm gay in a conservative thing. And conservatives love, like, niche things that are like, we got one who's supposed to hate us and they love us. So that might be why. But he talks incredibly fake. The other thing is, so there was speculation early on. There was a debate. Hey, does this mean very few people think he's sincere in this ex-gay thing? So there's, but there are some people who say, you know, it's real. He was gay. He's trying not to be gay, all that stuff. And there's other people who said, no, this, he was playing a long game from the beginning, and he was always straight, and now he's pretending like I've been reformed to being straight, right? And then there's other people who say, and I'm in this camp, curious what all you think, he was gay, and he's still gay. I mean, the idea is, I swear, I no longer like dick. It was so hot, but now it's gross. It's totally gross. I don't want it to have anything to do with it. It was fucking gross, little dangly flesh tube? Who wants that? Nobody wants that. Disgusting. That's where I think he is. I think he was gay and he is gay. 
And imagine the kind of person who would actually unironically go to Milo's clinic, his gay conversion therapy clinic. Oh, God. I think we need to infiltrate it. I think we need to infiltrate it. Listen, I... I think one of you, when he sets this up, should go to it and secretly record the whole thing, and then we'll play it on this show, and we'll talk about it. One of you should go undercover and and check it out and give us all the stories. Because, listen, in the past, there have been so-called gay conversion therapy clinics. I think, like, Michelle Bachman's husband ran one, and they always end up doing some creepy uh, shit. There's exercises, exercises, where they, like, put the guy on one of the guy's laps and they rock back and forth. Like, you're gay. Yeah, you're not gay. You know, I'm not gay. You like that? (laughs) This is what happens at these things, man. So, anyway, uh, you guys are going to have to go and check that out. I love how I'm putting it on all of you. I'm not like, I'll go. Listen, in my defense, and I love to defend me, I can't because somebody will probably recognize me there because the same, like, you know, media-type circles, like, I'm sure they've somebody there would notice me. So, anyway, um, I think he's still gay as hell. And, and of course, the final point is, and I hate, I really do hate this charge. Everybody knows that. Like, I try my best. I always take people at their word unless there's overwhelming evidence otherwise that, like, no, they're nefarious or they're lying or whatever. So, you very rarely, if ever, hear me make the claim grifter. Because I think it's thrown around way too nonchalantly these days and it just came to me like, anybody I disagree with is a grifter. There's two that I'm pretty certain are. Number one is Dave Rubin. Number two is uh, Milo Yiannopoulos. You know, there's other people I disagree with massively who I still would say, no, I think they mean it. I think they believe everything they're saying. But Milo and, uh, and Rubin in particular are like He's probably just doing this shit because he needs money. And so he's trying to fleece some evangelical Christians who love dick and don't want to love dick anymore. So here we are. I mean, I can't believe this is, this is next level stuff here, man. The nerve, the balls to be like, I'm going to open a gay conversion therapy clinic, even though it's thoroughly disproven. And I don't think there's many people out there who really believe he, uh, his story as he's telling it. You know, I don't even believe he threw his wedding ring into the ocean. I think he got a fucking 25-cent one at a pizzeria or something, and he threw it in the ocean, you know? So, anyway, I'll keep my eye on this because it's fucking hilarious. All right, let me take a break, y'all. When we come back, I've still got a lot of stuff to talk about, including GameStop. The GameStop story is crazy. Stay right there.
we're back, y'all. <clears throat> I just ate a bunch of cold pizza. I just ate a bunch of cold pizza. Pe- cold pizza is only slightly worse than uh, delicious fresh pizza. That's my hot take for the day. I'm actually full of hot takes for the day. I just tweeted this. Um, so I tried these. Don't ask me why I bought these. It seems like it's like the dumbest thing in the world to buy. But I bought carrot cake Oreos. I know it sounds so-so, but never never go food shopping when you're like really, really starving. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm an evangelist of don't be not hungry at all because you won't want to buy anything. Don't be super hungry because you'll want to buy everything. Be somewhere in the middle if you go to the food store. Like somewhere in the middle, that, that's the sweet, sweet spot. Anyway, so I bought these carrot cake Oreos. Now, how are they? Eh, they're so-so. I mean, 6.5 out of 10. They're not great. But I have to say, every time I have like regular carrot cake, it's fucking delicious. And that shit shouldn't be delicious. Because never in my life have I been like, I'm hungry. I sure am craving carrots. That's never happened. And I don't think that's ever happened with anybody ever. So when you think of carrot cake, it's like, why would that be delicious? It's like, it's like if somebody came up with prune cake, would you be like, yeah, can't wait to try that? No, you'd be like, nobody eats prunes on their own. So why would anybody want a prune cake? You don't have to go that far. You know, tomatoes, like, we have, have you ever just craved only tomato? No, maybe on a salad or some shit, but tomatoes on their own. And so if somebody made a tomato cake, you'd be like, that's disgusting. But for whatever reason, carrot cake is banging and it shouldn't be good. Like it makes no sense. It's so humbling that carrot cake is delicious because if you told me beforehand, you're going to, I'm going to make you place a bet as to whether or not this is good. I'd be like, bitch, take my whole bank account and put it on carrot cake is going to be gross as fuck. And I'd have been wrong. And I'd have lost my whole bank account. So I'm a humble man simply because carrot cake is delicious. Till my dying day, I will say it shouldn't be delicious. But it is delicious. You try to make sense of that. Um, All right. Let me continue here. So there is a story that came out yesterday from the American Prospect, which, by the way, is a great outlet. It's David Dayen's outlet. He does serious reporting on, like, corruption and economics and Wall Street, and it doesn't get its due. Like, you don't hear anybody talk about this. You don't see it out there much, but, man, everybody should check out The American Prospect because it's phenomenal work. Anyway, um, there's this piece I saw yesterday. It's titled, How the GameStop Hustle Worked, How Hedge Funds and Brokers Have Manipulated the Market. Um, I'm not going to get into all the details of it because if I'm being totally honest with you, I read the article three or four times and it's a long article and I still don't grasp all the different pieces of it because I'm not as deep in the financial world as perhaps I should be. Um, and so a lot of the stuff they're talking about are things that are above all of our pay grades. Um, short squeezes. Let me give you, uh, I don't have the article, actually, the full article actually pulled up, but there's calls and there's puts and there's short squeezes and there's all these different, basically, casino capitalist bets that they're referring to in this piece. 
And um, I'll read you the beginning part because you can get the gist of it just from this beginning part, but I'll leave the link in the video description box. And if you want to try to go through the whole thing to get a better understanding of what happened, do exactly that. So I'll leave that link, expand that uh, video description box below, and you'll see the link. Just read the whole article because I highly recommend it. There's nothing I could say that could give it like its full justice, you know? So anyway, here's the beginning of the article. I have written previously for the prospect about the frenzy over GameStop the video game and electronics company, by now, you know the story. Millions of retail investors made the stock soar by over 1,000% in January 2021. This brought disaster upon a handful of hedge funds that had bet on GameStop stock to drop. According to Markets Insider, one analyst estimated losses in February of roughly $19 billion. The hedge fund Melvin Capital reportedly closed out its position after taking a drubbing of 51%. Another fund, Maple Lane, lost 40%. The rally eventually subsided and the stock fell, though it remains well above its original price. But as retail investors looked into the details in the aftermath, they found telltale signs of a common yet egregious trading fraud by major brokers and hedge funds, which evaded what could have been, a fa- what could have been far bigger losses. What happened around GameStop can be explained only by massive counterfeiting of shares. The Securities and Exchange Commission which along with other regulators could confirm whether the patterns seen in GameStop trading constitute fraud, has known about and largely ignored practices like this for years. The financial media also ignores this systemic corruption. So read the whole article, link in the video description box. Um, I know there's some percentage of you that are really into finance. In fact, I read it so many times and struggled so much with it, I reached out to my buddy who is in finance to get his opinion on it, and he sort of explained to me what he makes of it all. But the gist of it is, the gist of it is exactly that, that what happened around GameStop can only be explained by massive counterfeiting of shares. So in other words, it appeared like the whole thing went away at some point. It was this huge story in the news. And then all of a sudden, one week, boom, it's gone. It's out of the news. Nobody's even talking about it anymore. How did that happen? Did the energy behind it just naturally subside? Well, maybe to some extent. But in reality, what they're saying is the hedge funds are committing fraud at a mass systemic scale in order to quell their own losses, in order to try to get away scot-free and listen A lot of people say this is still going on right this second, that there's deep market manipulation, even to the point where a lot of these trading apps, they still don't let you uh, buy GameStop. So it seems like there's this just massive collusion to protect the hedge funds and to screw the people on Reddit who are in the meme world and who decided Let's run this thing up, you know? So the most important point to bring up in the context of this story, and believe me, the rock goes deep. One of the senses you'll get from the story if you read it is that they're literally just like making shit up in regards to the stock. They're just making, they're counterfeiting. They're counterfeiting it. And the sense you get is they're doing it because they know they can get away with it, and they know they can get away with it because of regulatory capture. Namely, you have the hedge funds, the moneyed interests, effectively have bought the government. 
And so they know these guys aren't really going to crack down on us too much. You know, very similar to the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession. Super similar to that. You had a lot of these uh, companies dealing in subprime mortgages, they bought the ratings agencies who then would say, oh, these packages are AAA. So in other words, it's a super safe investment. It's AAA rated. You're not going to lose money on that shit. But in reality, it was total trash. And it wasn't AAA. The reason they were getting a AAA rating is because they bought the ratings agencies. I mean, listen, I'm sure a lot of that is going on here, where the hedge funds, the moneyed interests, have connections, whether it's at the regulatory agencies or whether it's just the entire federal government, because they pay their bribes to the politicians. And so they know they're largely going to get away with it. And the game is rigged in their favor. You know, meme lords on Reddit are not bribing the government. They're regular people. And so this was like a real revolt against Wall Street. And it seemed like out of nowhere it kind of went away. Turns out it didn't really go away. Turns out it's still going on, and they're still trying to rig it against the regular people. And really, that shouldn't be surprising to anybody. But what is surprising is the scale of it. What is surprising is that, as the American Prospect points out, listen, the Securities and Exchange Commission can look into this and verify everything we're saying, but they give detail as to, like, here's exactly how it's going down. Here's exactly what's happening. Here's exactly why this is bullshit. It's fraudulent. They're counterfeiting it. They're doing all these, these tricks and these lies to get away with it. And it looks like they're going to fucking get away with it. So there needs to be some sort of brave whistleblower or something at the SEC or at one of these regulatory bodies or even at these hedge funds, somebody who grows a conscience and is like, what the fuck are we doing to really come out and blow the lid off this whole thing? But who knows if that's going to happen because the system is rigged. looks like it's going to continue to be rigged and all these people are getting fucked, man. So in other words, the story didn't just go away. The story continued, but... There were a number of tricks behind the scenes to try to protect the hedge funds, you know. And we already know, we've, you know, previously we went into the details of this um, when the story originally was happening. There's some shady connections, man, shady connections between the hedge funds and these apps that you go to to, to trade stocks, where, you know, the hedge funds sort of fund the, the apps until the apps were responding to possible pressure behind the scenes from the hedge funds where they were like, okay, we're going to make it so you can't, purchase um, GameStop anymore. We can't, we'll make it so you can sell it still, but you can't purchase it anymore. Ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. So not only is the stock market a casino, it is a rigged casino. And the moneyed interests always end up winning. And there's a great example of it here. Okay, next. God, this is a great show today, isn't it? This story, you're probably not going to believe because it seems like it's fake, but I swear to God it's real. So this story seems like it's fake. 
but it's not fake. It's as real as a heart attack. And this is what happens when you have a bunch of idiots in positions of power. So Common Dreams is reporting, dangerous precedent. U.S. high court, corporate giants, Nestle and Cargill, in child slavery case. Excuse me? A lawyer for six men who alleged they were victims of human trafficking said the corporations, quote, should be held accountable for abetting a system of child slavery. Okay, this is insane. So I want to give you some of the facts here. I'm going to read through some of this. Human Rights Advocates Thursday denounced a Supreme Court decision in favor of the U.S. corporate giants Nestle USA and Cargill, 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 however you say it, which were sued more than a decade ago by six men who say the the two companies were complicit in child trafficking and profited when the men were enslaved on cocoa farms as children. The Supreme Court ruled eight to one against the plaintiffs, saying they had not proven the company's activities in the U.S. were sufficiently tied to the alleged child trafficking. Hang on every word I said there because every word is important in that sentence. So they said they had not proven the activities of the company in the U.S. were sufficiently tied to alleged child trafficking. The companies had argued that they could not be sued in the U.S. for activities that took place in West Africa. Neil Katyal, Katyal, the former acting solicitor general under the Obama administration, represented the two companies and also argued, so an Obama, admin, uh, an Obama official represented the companies in this case, defending from the child slavery claims, uh, and also argued that they could not be sued for complicity in child trafficking because they are corporations and not individuals. So if a corporation does slavery, what are you going to do? You can't go after them. There's a legal loophole. They can't be held accountable. It's only if an individual does slavery can you go after them. Oh, my God. Writing at Slate last December, Mark Joseph Stern called Katyal's position radical and extreme, detailing the nine justices' skepticism about his defense of the companies. But the court ultimately sided with him. The plaintiffs, who are from Mali and say they are survivors of child trafficking and slavery in Cote d'Ivoire, filed their lawsuit under the Alien Tort Statute in 18th century law, which allows federal courts to hear civil actions filed by foreigners regarding offenses committed in violation of the law of nations or a treaty of the United States. In recent years, the court has limited when the law can be invoked, arguing it cannot be used to file a lawsuit when the offense was committed almost entirely abroad. Okay, this is insane. So they go on to say, lawyers for the plaintiffs argue that Nestle and Cargill have total control over the production of cocoa in the region where child slavery is widespread and where the men said they were forced to work long hours and to sleep in locked shacks at night. This is crazy. The U.S. Department of Labor reported that uh, the use of child labor on family farms in cocoa-growing areas in West Africa increased from 31% to 45% between 2008 and 2019. There's now more slavery than was going on a decade ago or a little over a decade ago. Okay, this is ridiculous. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit ruled in October 2018 that Nestle and Cargill couldn't avoid the lawsuits, but writing to the Supreme Court majority on Thursday, Justice Clarence Thomas said the plaintiffs had failed to establish that the company's conduct occurred in the United States 
even if other conduct occurred abroad. What? And the companies made major operational decisions in the United States. This is, I don't, I honestly don't know how the fuck this could happen in 2021. In fact, it was literally the exact same day that Biden declared Juneteenth a federal holiday. The same day that he did that, the Supreme Court made this ruling. So the same day that we're given the symbolism of freedom, because Juneteenth is Emancipation Day. So the same day that we're celebrating emancipation and Biden makes it a federal holiday, to his credit, that's a good thing he did that, right? But the Supreme Court is saying, we're going to side with child slavery. And they're literally doing it on a technicality. They're saying, well, you didn't prove that they made the decision in the United States. And we only govern the United States. So basically what they're saying is it doesn't matter how egregious the crime is. If the crime is happening overseas and it's done by a corporation, we're powerless. There's nothing we could do because of legal technicalities and stuff and things. The Supreme Court of the United States sided with child slavery. And that is not an exaggeration. That is literally what they did. And they're using technicalities. They're using legal loopholes. They're saying, our hands are tied. What are we going to do? So let me get this straight. The logic of this ruling, very simply, is that corporations are not individuals, so you can't hold them accountable. And since it happened overseas, there's nothing we could do. They only say corporations aren't individuals when it's convenient for them to make that argument. When they want them to be individuals and have more rights, they pretend like they're individuals. So it's very selective on that front. And the idea of it happening overseas, if the fucking company is headquartered in the United States and it makes the decisions in the United States, which that is the case with this company, of course you can regulate them. Of course you can say you're not allowed to do that. Of course you can invoke U.S. law. You can invoke international law. It's fucking child slavery. They're passing the buck here to Congress, and Congress would need to, you know, write what? An anti-child slavery law? Okay, okay, corporations. Yes, we don't have child slavery in the United States, but if you're headquartered here, you also can't use child labor from West Africa. This is insane. Basically saying corporations are above the law. As long as there are some little technicalities we can hold on to, you can have a corporation. So if they're saying it's okay to do child slavery, would they also say it's okay for a corporation that's headquartered in the United States to have paramilitary wings that commit genocide in other countries? If they're, if they're consistent with their logic, they'd say, yeah, we have no, we have no standing. We can't do it because it's a corporation that's not an individual and it's happening overseas. So if Coca-Cola decides to arm themselves to the teeth and start gunning down babies and women and children in some, you know, desolate area of fill in the blank, Peru, so be it. Nothing we can do. <laughs> this shit is fucking crazy. It's in violation of U.S. law. It's in violation of international law, but they're saying... We can't enforce U.S. law or international law because it's not happening in the United States 
even though it's headquartered in the United States and they make the decisions in the United States. And they literally said, you haven't proven that they made the decision in the United States. But they're a company that's in the United States and headquartered in the United States. Where the fuck do you think they made the decision? Burundi? Like, what are you talking about? This is unbelievable, man. The Supreme Court upheld child slavery. Now, on the same day that they did the whole Juneteenth thing, Emancipation Day, this is corporatocracy shit here. Billionaires, corporations, moneyed interests get away with whatever they want to get away with, and they use an amalgamation of technicalities and loopholes and try to make you think you're crazy for opposing child slavery. That's where we are. And also, by the way, listen, I get it. Sometimes supply chains have to come from overseas because we don't make certain things in the United States of America, but I do think that when it comes to trade, trading as a matter of necessity is the way we should trade, and we should try our best to keep as many jobs as we can here and create as many things as we can here. Because under the guise of, like, free trade, we've outsourced so many good, decent-paying American jobs, and we've set up these horrific supply lines that, you know, diffuse responsibility. So now they say, we didn't make the decision. Hey, do we want there to be child slavery? No, but maybe somebody who we work with works with somebody else who works with somebody else, and that person is doing the child slavery. Am I really responsible for that? This is one of the arguments they could use. I'm, I'm at a lack of words for this, man. I know I just talked for however long, but I'm at a lack of words for this because it's so egregious, you almost can't imagine it's real. This is literally, this is like a Plessy versus Ferguson type decision. And by the way, where the fuck is the media? Where's the media? Credit to Common Dreams for talking about this. Where's the media? Where's the media? If you polled the American people and gave the facts of this case, 95% would be like, of course you side with, with the people and not the corporations here. What are you, crazy? By the way, there was another case that, was, uh, that helped Goldman Sachs that came out recently. Uh, Crystal Ball covered that on her show, Breaking Point. So when nobody's looking, nobody's paying attention, the media doesn't say anything about the Goldman Sachs case. The media doesn't say anything about this case. And so people are under the misimpression that, you know, your government is not full of psychopathic idiots who are totally bought and owned by corporations. I got news for you. The government and the judiciary, federal government and the judiciary are filled with these sorts of people. This legal technicality bullshit stretch of an argument to protect corporate power has led us to this place. And I'm sure a lot of you guys thought we would never sink even this low. We just did. Okay. Next. All right. So we got news from the Daily Poster that all-out war has been declared on Nina Turner. Corporate lobbyists declare war on Nina Turner. Corporate Dems and lobbyists for big oil, big pharma, Fox News and Wall Street are fundraising for Turner's primary opponent, Chantel Brown, in the Ohio congressional race. Goddamn. So what happened is that recently a poll came out which showed Nina Turner was up 50% to 15%. 50% to 15%. She was crushing them. Michael Jordan slash Tiger Woods style. Um, the establishment saw that and panicked. They panicked. And so on top of all this stuff happening... Hillary Clinton came out of the woodworks and was like, I'm endorsing Chantel Brown. I love Chantel Brown. So it was, it's just a spiteful, anti-Bernie, pro-corporate move on Hillary's part because that's who she is and that's how she functions. 
But now we know. So what's happening is I believe there's like a gathering at, for, for, from the super PAC, and the super PAC is funded by all these nefarious interests, and they're trying their best to bolster and, and pump up Chantel Brown as much as they can before the election. Is there enough time? I mean, I don't know. It's possible she closes the gap to some extent, um, which is why I keep giving everybody the advice. You've got to run through the tape. You can't stop. You gotta, when you're up as much as you're up, you've got to, hey, I want to be up 10 more points. And you've got to keep fighting and fight as hard as you possibly can because they're going to try to close the gap. And I believe that the election is in early August, which means we still have all of July to get through. So they're panicking and they're throwing everything they got at them. But what does this show you? The important part of this story is what? When push comes to shove to stop the real left from winning, Republicans and corporate Democrats will unite. In other words, the entire establishment will unite to try to take out the left. So all this talk of, like, unity, remember, they always scream that at lefties to fall in line to support corporate Democrats. Never works the other way. Never works the other way. Never works that uh, anybody says unite when it's a lefty leading. No. You have Hillary Clinton and Chantel Brown and all these corporate Democrats siding with big oil and Fox News to try to beat Nina Turner. I thought you guys wanted unity. Why aren't you stepping out of the way and backing Nina Turner? It's disgusting, man. And, and let's be clear, as much as nihilistic as I am and as pessimistic as I am in regards to um, the current state of the left and how the Justice Democrats are not doing what they were sent there to do, I don't think that's an opinion. I think that's a fact. They've abandoned the left Tea Party approach the outsider-insider approach where you use public pressure, they're not doing that. But as much of a doomer as I am, do I think Nina Turner would make a difference and would make it more likely that we get some good policies implemented? Hell yes, I do. Hell yes, I think that. Because I think she has those leadership qualities that I desperately want the left to have. Now, the only question mark is that if she's the only one and it's all on her shoulders... It's tough. She can only do so much, and she's going to need some help. She's going to need some people to fucking step up with her and to be like, you know what? You're right. Somebody, Jamal Bowman, somebody step up and be like, I'm going to fight with you alongside you, and even if the media hates us, even if they smear us relentlessly, I'm right here. So she's going to need help, but you bet your ass it increases the likelihood we'll get some decent policies implemented if Nina Turner is in there because she's a fighter and she's right on the issues. A lot of the other Justice Democrats are right on the issues, but they're not fighters. And so they try to go along to get along and get crumbs from the establishment, and that's never going to fucking work. So this is evidence that they're scared of her, too, because they wouldn't be doing this panic thing at the last minute if they weren't. They know she's a game changer. They threw everything at her. Everything they had, they're throwing at her right now, because they know that it's a huge victory for the left, and it could lead to some very positive change that we want. And they want to stop that by any means necessary. So... If she wasn't going to be effectual, if she didn't scare them, they wouldn't be doing this. So remember that. That's an important point. So, of course, we wish Nina the best, hope she wins, and she's got to weather this storm. This is the biggest test she's had yet to this point, is having the entire establishment lined up against her. This is some shit like they did to Bernie. Keep fighting. Keep being aggressive. Stay on the offense. Build your lead even more. Never give up. Never lay down in that chalk outline of yourself.
Okay. There was a story that came out a while ago about how Tucker Carlson is a bullshit artist. Now, I say that, and you might think I'm, like, offhand colloquially referring to him as that. I mean, I am. But also, that was effectively the argument Fox News made in court in response to a lawsuit. So what happened is, I think it was Karen McDougal, one of um, Trump's former mistresses, who may have sued Tucker or Fox News. And the reason why she did is because Tucker said on air that Karen McDougal was effectively extorting President Trump at the time, because I guess she wanted money or something, and um, she wanted money to not tell her story or something to that effect. And so Tucker said, that's extortion. Now, in court, Fox News said, you can't take what Tucker says literally. He's not just a news person. He's a political commentator. He gives opinions. He exaggerates. And he gives his take on stuff. So you can't say it's literal that he means she was extorting him. It's his spin on it. And the court agreed and said, yeah, okay. You know, this isn't libel or slander or defamation or whatever. Um, It's just a guy who exaggerates and stretches the truth and gives his opinion. And he's not a truth teller. He doesn't give facts. And the left responded to that by going, oh, my God, Fox News just gifted us this on a silver platter. They just said he doesn't give facts. He's not a truth teller. He's just a bloviating exaggerator. And I think the right accurately, excuse me, the left accurately seized on that and was like, how did you fucking trust this guy? Look at him. Look what they said. They admitted this in court that he's like this. Well, guess what? Now, Rachel Maddow was sued in a similar case. So what happened with Rachel Maddow is, she said that on One American News Network, they are, or one of the hosts or something, is, quote, literally paid by the Russians, or literally doing Russian propaganda, something along those lines. And so One American News sued Maddow. And they were like, that's fucking dead wrong. We're not taking any money from Russia, and you're a liar, and you're a smear merchant, and this is libel or slander or defamation. I always forget which one is written word and which one is speaking, libel or slander, but whatever. They sued and said, you can't say that. And that went to court. Guess what? Here's what the judge said about Maddow. Viewers expect her to do so, as it is indeed her show, and viewers watch the segment with the understanding that it will contain Maddow's personal and subjective views about the news. Thus, the court finds that as part of the totality of the circumstances, the broad context weighs in favor of a finding that the alleged defamatory statement in Maddow's opinion and and exaggeration of the Daily Beast article, and that reasonable viewers would not take that statement, the statement, as factual. Here, Maddow has inserted her own colorful commentary into and throughout the segment, laughing, expressing her dismay, for example, saying, I mean, what? And calling the segment a sparkly story and one we must take in stride. For her to exaggerate the facts and call One American News Russian propaganda was consistent with her tone up to that point, and the court finds a reasonable viewer would not take the statement as factual given this context. The context of Maddow's statement shows reasonable viewers would consider the contested statement to be her opinion. A reasonable viewer would not actually think One American News is paid Russian propaganda. Instead, he or she would follow the facts of the Daily Beast article that One American News and Sputnik share a reporter and both pay this reporter to write articles. Anything beyond this is Maddow's opinion or her exaggeration of the facts. So the judge is saying the exact same thing that they said about Tucker. Uh, quote, reasonable viewers would not take the statements as factual. 
People know this is Maddow's opinion or, quote, her exaggeration of the facts. That's the exact same thing they said about Tucker. It's the same thing. Now, I actually agree with the decision in both cases. I agree that it's really not defamation in either case. That, by the way, I disagree slightly with the interpretation. No, I think they both meant it. I think Tucker meant, yeah, she's extorting them. And I think Maddow meant, yeah, they're paid Russian propaganda. I think they both meant it. But I still would side with them. Because in order to prove libel or slander or defamation in this country, you need to prove what's called material damages. So in other words, it can't just be that somebody lied about you or lied about you maliciously. It has to be, and here's how it affected my life in a very clear negative way. Whatever it is. Oh, I couldn't get a job because of it. Or, you know, I had to be in therapy for years and I've been traumatized. And here, my psychologist will explain all that to you. There needs to be, you need to prove material damages. I don't think Karen McDougal was materially damaged, and I don't think that the One American News Post was materially damaged. Let me be clear. I think Maddow's 100% fucking wrong. They're not paid Russian propaganda. They're not. And I think that Tucker's probably wrong, too. That's not an attempted extortion, right? I mean, it's closer than the Maddow thing. I don't think they're paid Russian propaganda at all at One American News. I just think they're just insane, idiot right-wingers. I think the, the Tucker example where she, he says, yeah, that's like almost extortion. It is almost extortion. It's not actually extortion. It didn't go to, to a court. You know, Trump wasn't proven right, and Karen McDougal wasn't found guilty. I mean, she has the right to tell her story no matter what, so it's hard to say it's extortion. Like, if there's a grain of tr- if there's truth in it, can that be extortion? I don't know. I'm not a legal expert, and so I should probably not even go down this path. But either way, the way the law works is you need to prove material damages. There's not enough material damage here to, to, you know, rule against somebody speaking. You always have to lean hard on the side of free speech. So I actually agree with the judge and with the lawyers in the case of Maddow and in the case of Tucker. However, I mean, it's just, it's clear now, it's not even open to interpretation, they are both propagandists who twist the facts, who exaggerate, who give their opinion and who aren't to be taken seriously. That is true of both of them. It is. It's true of both of them. It is. So courts have now said Tucker Carlson is a bullshit artist and Rachel Maddow is a bullshit artist. They're bloviating opinion havers, and um, they twist the facts. It's not me saying it. It's courts saying it, and I happen to agree with the courts. I think the courts are right in both senses. You know, I think that they're not guilty. There should be no punishment for what they said. But I think they're both, the courts are right in both instances to say, you guys are sort of full of shit. You guys are bullshit artists and you're exaggerators and you have opinions. And uh, you're not to be taken seriously. You're not to be taken at face value. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. So just remember that because there are plenty of people. These are the two who are the most popular. You have Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow. They're the ones that have the most devoted following of people who are on cable news. And a lot of people hang on their every word. Just know, this is who they really are. They really are more interested in telling you their version of events and their interpretation of it than first and foremost getting the actual information out there and then giving their take on it. So keep that in mind. These are not people to look up to or trust or believe at all.
All right, next. I'm talking about this next one because I want to laugh with you. That's what we're going to do. We're going to laugh together. For Father's Day, Trump suggested spending $100 to $7,500 for two tickets to see him with Bill O'Reilly. They're going on tour together, Trump and Bill O'Reilly, which is amazing. It's almost like Trump is admitting I'm now a has-been, because you know, Bill O'Reilly has been off the air since like 2017 and has been getting shitty views online since then. Up to $7,500 for two tickets to see him with O'Reilly. What the fuck do you get for the $7,500? What a, like, you get to go backstage after the show and... They fondle your ball sack? Like, what are you talking about? 7500 to see Trump and Bill O'Reilly? So, first of all, I really hope this is recorded and released because I would love to watch this and, and break it down like it's the Zapruder film. I'd love to discuss the million ways in which they're full of shit. But I'm just floored by that price, man. I mean, the nerve, 7500 for two tickets, and I guess the regular tickets are going for 100 The 7500 has to be, like, right up front or almost on stage with them or something, right? But there's an even funnier angle to this story, which is that Trump spoke about this publicly. I released a statement or whatever about it. And a lot of the QAnon people lost their fucking minds. They're probably thinking, wait, why? I don't understand. Why, why would they lose their minds? Because they're under the impression that Trump will be back in office by August. Because that's the new conspiracy. That there's going to be this big deep state plot. Where, by the way, hilarious. They used to say the deep state was against Trump. Now they're arguing the deep state is actually for Trump, and they're going to find a way to do a plot to oust Biden and put him in there, and everybody's going to be cool with it, and everything's going to be back, back to normal with Daddy Trump in power. So they think he's going to be in office by August. Obviously, this, this tour is after that, and they're like, wait, how could you do a tour with Bill O'Reilly while you're being president? That makes no sense. So they lost it, and they were upset about it. They were like, oh, it's all bullshit. He's actually not going to be put back in power. No shit, he's not going to be put back in power. And by the way, Trump is further feeding into these people's delusions because every time he releases a statement now, he puts 2024 or sooner. So that's him saying, yeah, I know people are crazy people are out there hoping I get in there sooner. Let me play into them. Let me, like, give them a little bit of false hope. I mean, come on, dude. Come on, man. That's so sad. I mean, listen, and I've said this before. I don't believe in deplatforming. I think it's wrong in principle. I think the only time that somebody should basically be kicked off is they do direct threats of violence or doxing or whatever. Outside of that, I really do wholeheartedly believe in free speech. So I'm not for the deplatforming, but let's be serious. It worked in the sense that he's become way more irrelevant now. If he was still on social media, he'd still get way more press. He'd be in everybody's feeds and in everybody's mind. But he's not because the deplatforming effectively worked. He's screaming to himself with his presidential statements that so many fewer people are looking at. And um, it's crazy. It's crazy. And it is, you know, it's a cautionary tale in some respects, too, because if they can shut up the former president, they can shut up fucking anybody. They really can. So, but there you have it. $7,500 for two tickets to see Trump and Bill O'Reilly. Definitely not doing that shit, but I would love to watch a video and break it down, and I hope we get a video of it. Okay.
All right, Dave Rubin time. Dave Rubin clips the Twitter uh, the Twitter feed is the Twitter feed. Why am I calling it a feed? The Twitter handle, the Twitter name, the Twitter account. There you go. Account was the word I was looking for, but I'm an idiot and my brain doesn't work. Hilarious because I'm going to title this video like Dave Rubin's brain breaks while discussing Glenn Greenwald. But anyway, so my brain breaks too. So I'm not not judging on that particular thing. What I am judging on is the substance of what he says here. So Rubin is going to talk about um, Glenn Greenwald, and he's going to, I mean, Jesus Christ, you can almost see the gears slowly turning in his head. They're all creaky and rusty. (laughs) He is going to make a fool of himself by completely misdiagnosing everything about Greenwald, everything about politics. I won't say any more. Take a look, and then we'll break it down. Well, I will pat myself on the back a little bit here which, by saying you're kind of repeating a lot of the stuff that I was saying okay. four years ago from a, from a political perspective mm-hmm. because I was a lefty, too. So Glenn, if you think of Glenn, he's like a traditional lefty. He, okay. And I think, what is that? I think, well, he's a lefty in that he, well, if you look, well, so first off, I would say we shouldn't look at things left and right anymore. You should look at things as sort of top-bottom, that you should look at them as, you know, you're either for centralized power or decentralized power. Okay. So that would be the basic thing. But in a traditional sense, lefty, meaning you're a Democrat, you believe the government should and can do certain things, or you're more of a conservative or a Republican and that you basically believe the government's not supposed to do a lot, don't tread on me, low taxes, states' rights, things like that. So he definitely comes from more of like a centralized, democratic, democratic. Right, so he comes from that world. Okay. I come from that world, too. Then I woke up very publicly over the last couple of years. That's kind of what put me on the map. And he was sort of staying in that spot. And then I think what happened, and, the re- and this is where I think he woke up to him, was Trump. And what he realized was, and I think a lot of lefties realized this, is that Trump was not this evil right-wing crazy monster that they made him out to be. In many respects, he was doing a lot of the things that we all wanted. Let's get us out of wars. Let's not pay countries to do things that often work against our interests. Uh, Let's get rid of regulation. Let's try to get the economy going. So a lot of economic populists that were on the left started liking Trump. Okay. All right. Where do I begin with this one? Let's start with that last point. He says, a lot of economic populists on the left started liking Trump. Uh, Wrong. I am one of the main left populists in the country, and I identify as that. I don't know very many other lefties except maybe Crystal Ball who identify as populist left. And I've been really clear from the beginning. His economic populism was a fraud. We knew it was a fraud almost immediately. There has been net outsourcing of jobs under his administration. Did did you know that? He ran as the anti-outsourcing guy. There's been more outsourcing since he was president. Remember the whole carrier factory where he saved the jobs of the people in the factory? Some people followed up a year later. Not only did carrier take all this tax money, they outsourced the jobs anyway. So we got hosed in two ways. They outsourced the jobs, so those people got screwed, and we paid the company as taxpayers, and they took that money and still outsourced the jobs. So we hosed the taxpayers on top of the workers. He was a fraud. He was a fraud. In his renegotiation of NAFTA, he did a giant giveaway to Big Pharma. And he he took some of the TPP provisions and slipped them into his renegotiation of NAFTA. The idea that he's an economic populist is a complete farce. His biggest bill was the, the 2017 tax cuts 
for the rich bill. It was a tax cut to corporations, and 83% of the tax cuts went to the top 1%. He's not an economic populist. There are no economic populists on the left who are like, yeah, Trump is an economic populist, and that's why I support him. That doesn't exist. That doesn't exist. Then, he, I mean, he's super confused, Ruben, because he says, let's go through this. Glenn realized that Trump wasn't evil and this right-wing crazy monster. Trump, uh, excuse me, Glenn likes to go after liberals because he sees so much hypocrisy among liberals. But if you talk to Glenn and you ask him straight up, what do you think of Donald Trump? He'll be like, he was a fraud. And he was a monster. He'll tell you that. Granted, he doesn't talk about it that much because he's obsessed with the hypocrisy of liberals. But if you ask him, the idea that Glenn is like pro-Trump is just factually wrong. He's not pro-Trump. That is a huge exaggeration and overreach. Rubin says, oh, you know, Trump was doing a lot of things that we wanted, like getting us out of wars. He didn't get us out of wars. He didn't get us out of wars. He said, oh, I'm going to get us out of Afghanistan. He didn't get us out of Afghanistan. Even his so-called withdrawal, which was set for when he left office, after he left office, even that wasn't a full withdrawal. Similar to Biden, he's keeping all the contractors on, on the ground there. And a full withdrawal is actually withdrawn. He was in there for four years. He could have gotten us out. He didn't get us out. So how can you give him credit ending wars? We're still in Iraq. We're still in Afghanistan. We bombed Syria. We increased the drone war. What are you talking about? He didn't end wars. And you know who knows that? Uh, Glenn Greenwald. You know who doesn't know that? Dave Rubin. And then I love this because it shows just how confused Rubin is about everything. Just before saying Trump is an economic populist and that's why some people on the left like him, utter nonsense, he goes, Trump uh, got rid of regulation and got the economy going. You do understand that deregulation is the fundamental opposite of economic populism. Economic populism would include market regulation. It's the total opposite position. You can't say, this guy is such an economic populist and he deregulates all the time. That's a contradiction. An economic populist would regulate the market. Like, for example, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That's a deeply populist agency because the whole idea is to return tens of billions of dollars to defrauded Americans when Wall Street and financial institutions ripped them off. But what did Trump do? He went in there and he gutted the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. You know what else he did? He got rid of the rules that were going into effect for the predatory payday loan industry. He also dropped the Obama-era court cases against the predatory payday loan industry. The opposite of an economic populist. The opposite. And by the way, Trump took a million dollars for his inauguration from the predatory payday lenders, and then he went on to drop the court cases against them and drop the regulations on them. That's the opposite of economic populism. That's economic elitism and corruption. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't know anything. Ruben doesn't. Oh, my God, it's so bad. All right, so now let's go to the top here. He likes to give himself credit, Ruben. He says, well, Glenn is now saying a lot of the stuff that I was saying a few years ago. Really? Name one thing. Because he's not saying those things. Regardless of what you think of Glenn Greenwald, and I know there are a lot of people on the left who are no longer big fans of him. Regardless of what you think of Glenn Greenwald, he's a zillion times more thoughtful than Dave fucking Rubin. And Dave is so dumb, he can't, he doesn't know how to separate things out and look at a criticism of Trump from Trump's left versus a criticism of Trump, or excuse me, a criticism of Democrats from the left and a criticism of Democrats from Republicans. Glenn is not doing 
criticisms of Democrats from their right. So Glenn is not saying things you were saying a few years ago. He's not saying them at all. And the whole, like, oh, wokeness bad thing, that's not... There are so many people who believe that on the right and the left. That's not like, what, you think you pioneered cancel culture is bad? I've been saying that forever, and I'm actually more consistent on it because I see plenty of right-wing cancel culture, and you don't ever acknowledge it, ever. Glenn does, by the way. Glenn was one of the first people who realized that there's all these anti-BDS laws popping up in states across the United States of America. That's cancel culture. That's a crackdown on free speech. Glenn talks about that all the time. You don't talk about that, Dave Rubin. You don't talk about the anti-protest laws that are being passed in Republican states. Glenn does. Uh, then he, I love this. He calls Glenn a traditional lefty. And then when asked to um, you know, explain that further, he says, I, I don't look at left and right anymore. We shouldn't do that. You just said he was a traditional lefty. He's a lefty, but I'm not going to explain that because we shouldn't even look at left and right anymore. Um, then I love his breakdown of Democrat and Republican. And again, this shows how confused he is. He says, Democrats generally believe government can do certain things, and Republicans think they should stay out of things, and we should just have state, states' rights and low taxes and stuff like that. This shows a fundamental misunderstanding of Glenn, because his description was, Glenn is a traditional lefty. He thinks the government can do certain things, and you know um, the Republicans think government should stay out of things. Glenn has always been of the belief, yes, the government can do things when it comes to the economy, but... When it comes to, like, social issues, Glenn is, like, a hardcore libertarian in the sense that he believes in, like, maximizing freedom. So Glenn does not want the government involved with, for example, NSA spying. You know, he wants people to have maximum civil liberties and civil rights. And so even his description of, like, the just political labels is wrong because you can't call Glenn a lefty who thinks the government can do certain things but ignore that most of the stuff Glenn talks about is actually what civil liberties and rights and making sure the government doesn't overreach. And so here's a guy who, you know, Glenn wants the government out of your life when it comes to marijuana, for example. Glenn wants smaller government when it comes to the NSA and war. So you can't, like, it, it, Ruben is just so confused in so many ways. And all he, his interpretation of Glenn is like, he must be on the right now or something because he oftentimes criticizes liberals, mostly from a left position. There are times I disagree with Glenn. There are times where, you know, I think he, he, he's nitpicking a little bit and sort of missing the forest through the trees, if that's the way the saying goes. I don't know if that's the way it goes. Missing the forest for the trees, missing the forest through the trees, whatever. Uh, like the thing recently about, he was going off about um, the media going after Trump for tear-gassing peaceful protesters before he gave a speech. And he said, oh, this new report shows Trump didn't order that. And so the media lied. And he was obsessed with the fact that the media went after Trump and they were wrong to go after Trump. I thought that was a little nitpicky because I don't care if Trump ordered it or didn't order it. Tear-gassing peaceful protesters, whether it was ordered by Trump, Bill Barr, some fucking head of police somewhere, or some other federal government a bureaucrat. Whoever ordered it is fucking wrong, and the biggest problem is that peaceful protesters were tear-gassed. The fact that the media got the thing wrong and blamed Trump doesn't strike me as more egregious than the fact that the tear-gassing happened. So talk more about the tear-gassing, you know what I mean? So there are times I think he misfires a little bit, or he's obsessed with certain things that miss the bigger picture, 
But at the end of the day, in no way, shape, or form, can you say Glenn is the next Dave Rubin? Glenn agrees with Dave Rubin. Glenn is now on the right, or whatever the fuck these people are trying to say. That is just so dumb, it's unforgivable. You know what I mean? And there are some of the harshest, some of the harshest critics of Glenn on the left would probably agree with Rubin and be like, yeah, man, you nailed it. He's the next you. But I think that's totally unfair. There are many disagreements I have with Glenn, but to, for Rubin to be like, oh, yeah, he's saying a lot of things I was saying a few years ago, that's just so disrespectful to Glenn and completely untrue. And, of course, Rubin manages to botch every little explanation he has in here. Um, so there you have it. Dave Rubin hurling insane, I would say accusations, but he thinks he's giving Glenn a compliment or something. Dave Rubin misdiagnosing everything yet again. All right. Next. We're almost done here. I got to hurry up because I'm running out of time, baby, running out of time. So the New York Times and a lot of elite media are flat out lying about workers. They're saying, oh, the price hikes, or excuse me, uh, workers' wages going up is leading to price hikes. So this is from Business Insider. Chipotle gave huge payouts to its CEO and shareholders, then blamed workers for price increases. Here's what's really going on. So this is a great article. Um, I'll give you some of what's said in here. Last week, the New York Times ran a story about a small menu price increase at a fast food, or at a fast casual food chain, written by Julie Cresswell. The piece began, executives at Chipotle said on Tuesday that the fast food chain had raised menu prices by about 4% to cover the cost of the increased employee wages. Headlined, Chipotle will increase its menu prices as labor costs rise. So the story is confusing for a few reasons. First, the New York Times is not traditionally in the business of reporting on the price increases in restaurants, and a 4% increase doesn't seem newsworthy at all. The last paragraph of the piece quotes Chipotle CEO Brian Nickel, admitting at a conference that the increase amounts to quarters and dimes that we're layering in. So the only reason this story could possibly be considered worthy of the Times' world-famous all-the-news-that's-fit-to-print slogan is Chipotle's claim that the price increases were directly caused by increased worker pay. The chain recently raised its wages for all employees to an average of $15 an hour. That's an average. That's not the minimum. Uh, So some employees will be making less than that. So with all the information in mind, the hook of this New York Times story seems to be that Chipotle's executives are blaming a tiny menu price bump on a wage increase. What's disappointing is that Cresswell seems to be repeating Nichols' claim, the CEO, without doing any investigation into Chipotle's finances. Chipotle never supports its claim that the price increase is due to wage increases, and Cresswell never mentioned that Chipotle paid Nickel $38 million last year. That's an all-time high. Joanna Fantazzi at Nation's Restaurant News reported that Nickel's 2020 salary was set to be just $14.8 million, but financial targets were waived in light of the company's stellar performance during the pandemic. So Chipotle's executive gave its CEO a $24 million pay increase which means that Nickel earned 2,898 times more than the median Chipotle worker salary of just $13,127. Why didn't Chipotle's board mention Nickel's $24 million raise as a possible reason for its menu price increases? Cresswell doesn't say. She also doesn't note that as of the first quarter of 2021, 
Chipotle was sitting on, get this, $1.2 billion in cash and equivalents. The Time story also doesn't mention that the company is now in the middle of a huge stock buyback campaign. Jesus Christ. Sakshi Agarwala writes at Seeking Alpha that in an effort to enhance shareholders' value, Chipotle restarted its stock repurchase plans and have announced additional $100 million for stock buyback, bringing to a total $153.8 million repurchase plan. By the end of the first quarter, Chipotle had repurchased $61 million in stock. That is absolutely insane. Just so everybody understands, stock buybacks were banned before 1982. So only since 1982 are they legal. It's basically a scheme to transfer wealth from workers to the wealthy. That's what that is. Despite the fact that Chipotle had dedicated nearly $200 million to executive and shareholder payouts in the last few months, the New York Times credulously reprinted the company's claim that an average $15 an hour wage is the reason why the company is increasing menu prices 4%. And it's not just the New York Times. Basically, every outlet reported it that way. So... The CEO got a colossal raise. They're doing a massive stock buyback program, and they're blaming the workers instead of the CEO gargantuan pay raise and the stock buyback program, which, by the way, again, stock buyback should be illegal. Illegal. So this is what elite media does. This is what mainstream media does. They, all they did was talk to the executives, and they were a stenographer to the executives. That's unforgivable. That's not journalism. That's not even a basic investigation. You're just doing propaganda for big business. That's all you're doing. And you blame the workers. That's crazy, man. And we're not even talking about all them making a living wage. Not even all them are making $15 an hour. So they raise wages. Some people are still not making a living wage. And New York Times is blaming the workers for a tiny pay, uh, uh, wage increase. Excuse me. No, price increase. It's unforgivable. It's unforgivable, and I said it before, and I'll say it again, but it's a fucking shame that you guys feel like in order to get anything resembling honest commentary, you have to come to a loudmouth YouTuber like myself. I mean, New York Times is doing worse work than I am, and I'm a guy who makes fart noises on air? It's beyond pathetic, man. It really is. It goes to show you they're all in the club, and you're not in that fucking club. And when it comes to a lot of mainstream media, they're taking money from these big companies, and then they do propaganda for these big companies. The ad dollars are coming from these companies. And I'm proud to say I've never had a conversation with an advertiser. Seltzer memes aside, I've never had a conversation with an advertiser, and I'm fucking proud of that fact because I don't know anybody else who's been doing this as long as I have and never talked to an advertiser. I've been doing this full-time since, like, late 2012. Never talked to an advertiser. So... Maybe there's something to that, and maybe the industry would be a lot more pure and a lot more honest if you stayed away from the advertisers. But, you know, you've got to actually build a loyal audience and have the audience tip you in order to survive, and a lot of people don't have a loyal audience and aren't putting out anything interesting enough to get tipped from the audience. seems like it's, uh, you know, we're stuck with a shitty media as far as the eye can see, and that's pathetic. But when you look at something like this, it's so beyond egregious. I almost can't wrap my mind around it. To not bring up the stock buybacks and not bring up the CEO compensation and just report that it's the workers' fault that prices are increasing. And by the way, it's only a 4% increase anyway. It just, 
they're engaging in class warfare against working people and for the top 1%. Okay. Final story of the day, y'all. So a new poll came out not that long ago. We talked about it on the last show. It showed that Ron DeSantis uh, actually beat Trump when it comes to the 2024 primary. However, it's done in a different way. It's an approval poll, which means it's not like, it's not the traditional way of doing a poll. If we did the traditional way, Trump would have won that for sure. But when you do the approval poll, DeSantis edited out Trump. So there's this other piece of that poll I wanted to talk to you guys about. This is really something else. This is the list of priorities for Republicans. Get ready to pull your hair out. This is among the actual hardcore base at a conservative conference. Immigration and border security is the number one issue. 82%. Election integrity. So in other words, Trump's lies about how election was stolen and we need to bring back integrity. 79%. Religious freedom, 74%. Religious freedom. How is anybody taking away religious freedom? Federal budget, debt, and deficit, 74%. Under Trump, the deficit and the debt massively increased, and they didn't say anything. They supported it. It was Trump doing it. Now all of a sudden they believe in it. Gun rights, 73%. National defense, 71 Energy independence, 70. Education, 61. China, Russia, 60. Life and abortion, 55. Media bias, 55. Criminal justice, 37. Transportation and infrastructure, 35. Healthcare, last on this list. Now, to be fair, the list goes on and on and on. I don't have the rest of it in front of me at the moment. But dead last on this portion of the list, healthcare. They ranked healthcare at the bottom and ranked immigration at the top and election integrity at the top. Oh, it's hard, man. I'm fighting back saying TFG. I am fighting back saying TFG. But you've got to keep it real. The sorts of people who would show up to a hardcore Republican conference, you're bordering on TFG. Most of them that are there are probably TFG. If you can't see that in the middle of a pandemic that healthcare is probably a more important issue than fucking immigration, it's hard to get through to you, dog. Now, listen, on immigration, I've said this before, I'm a moderate. I think it's okay to have borders. I think it's okay to secure the borders. I think it's okay to enforce our laws. I think we should have a humane, reasonable, empathetic process where we determine who can and can't stay here, and we should do the right thing. We should do the humanitarian thing. It should coincide with human rights and, and international law. Um, but there's no way immigration is the number one fucking issue. And this is the trick that Republican elites have played on regular people. Blame the brown people for all of your problems. It's not the top 1%, it's not the billionaires, it's not the corporations, it's not that they're outsourcing everybody's jobs and buying the government and getting tax breaks for themselves and sticking you with the tax bill. Don't look at the rich, don't look at the class war, look at fucking brown people. Somebody who's more poor than you and worse off than you is somehow stealing your job and making your life worse. It's scapegoating 101. It's scapegoating and it's xenophobic. That's what it is. And so they convince people, no, immigration is the number one issue and election integrity. The election was actually won by Biden. I hate to break it to you guys. I hate to break it to you guys. I know you don't like that. I know it triggers you, but it's factual. So fucking get over it. But no, they're religious freedom up there as if anybody's coming to take away your religious freedom. The debt and the deficit, two and a half minutes ago, you didn't say anything about it. You didn't care about it. But now that it's Biden and all the Republicans have is to flip on a dime and be hypocrites and say, don't spend money on good things because debt and deficit. You 
immediately fell for it like suckers. So I'm trying to be a nice guy here, and I do want to do my best to save as many people as we can from this black hole of stupidity, but there's got to be a lot of TFGs if they're ranking it like this. Healthcare towards the bottom, immigration and religious freedom and election integrity and the debt and the deficit at the top? Come on, son. Republican elites and right-wing media have convinced these people to not care about things that would actually improve their lives. They've convinced them, don't care about the $15 minimum wage. Don't care about unions. Don't care about getting everybody health care, including yourself. Don't care about ending the wars. That's what they've convinced them. That's what they've, they've convinced these people of. And that's unforgivable. You know, the brainwashers have succeeded. And so we got to try our best to unbrainwash them, but it is going to be hard. It's going to be an uphill battle. Don't get it twisted. There are plenty of Republicans, when you look at the polls of the entire country, who don't even realize that they're a lot more lefty than they are on a lot of issues. So for all, all those people, there's a lot of hope. A lot of moderates, there's a lot of hope. But for the most hardcore Trump fans and the most hardcore uh, right-wing base, the definition of TFGs. If you're putting healthcare towards the bottom and you have fucking election integrity towards the top, it's going to take a long time to try to de-brainwash your ass. That's for sure. All right, guys. I love you, baby. We're done here. Everybody have a great rest of the day. I'm out. Peace. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.